Chapter 15 My Mickey Mouse alarm clock went off at seven and buzzed stubbornly at me until I kicked off the covers, sat up, and shut it off. I ached all over, felt stiff all over. But that sense of overwhelming exhaustion had faded, and since I was already vertical, I got moving. I got into the shower and tried not to jump too much when the first shock of freezing water hit me. I've had some practice at it. I've never had a water heater last me more than a week without some kind of technical problem coming up. And that was the kind of thing you just did not want to take chances on when you have a gas heater. So my showers were always either cold or colder. Given my dating life and the inhuman charms available to some of the beings who occasionally faced off with me, it was probably just as well. But especially when I had bumps and bruises and sore muscles, I wished I could have a skin-blistering hot shower like everyone else in the country. And suddenly the water shifted from ice cold to piping hot. It was a shock, and I actually let out a little yelp and danced around in the shower until I could redirect the shower head so that it wasn't scalding my bits and pieces. After the initial shock of the temperature change, I leaned my aching head and neck into the spray for a second and let out a long groan. Then I said, Damn it, I told you to stop that. Lashiel's voice murmured in a quiet laugh under the sound of the water. A sensation of phantom fingertips dug into the wire-tight muscles at the base of my neck, easing soreness away. You should use the technique I taught you last autumn to block out the discomfort. I don't need to, I said, and tried for grouchy, but the heated water and massaging fingers... Illusory though they were, were simply delicious. I'll be fine. Your discomfort is my discomfort, my host, she said, and sighed. Literally, as all my perceptions can come only through your own. This isn't real, I said quietly. The water isn't really hot. No one is actually massaging my neck. It's an illusion you're laying over my senses. Does it not feel soothing? Her disembodied voice asked. Does it not ease the tension? Yes, I sighed. What matter, then? It is real enough. I waved a hand as though trying to brush off an annoying fly from my neck, and the sensation of those strong, steady fingers retreated. Go on, I said. Hands off. I don't want to start my day with a psychic cage match, but if you push me to it, I will. As you wish, her voice said, and the sense of presence retreated, then paused. My host, I note that you made no mention of the hot water. I grunted and mumbled something under my breath, ducked my head under the seemingly scalding water for a few seconds, and then said, Did you pick up on what happened last night? Indeed, the fallen angel replied. What was your read, then? There was a moment of thoughtful silence, and then Lashiel responded, that Karen feels a certain distance between the pair of you is a professional necessity, but that she is considering that time and circumstance might someday render it irrelevant. I sighed. No, I said. Not that. Stars and stones. I don't want dating advice from a freaking hell tart. I meant the things that attacked people at the convention. Ah, Lashiel said, with no trace of offense in her tone. It was obviously the attack of a spiritual predator. It takes one to know one, I thought. I rolled a stiff shoulder under the hot water. 
If that's true, then the attacks weren't about violence, I said thoughtfully. Which explains what I saw in that bathroom where the old man had been attacked. Whatever did it was intent on causing fear, causing pain, then devouring the... What, the psychic energy it generated in the victims? That is a somewhat simplistic description, she said, but one that is as close as I expect a mortal can come to understanding. What, you're a mortality bigot now? Now and always, she replied. I mean no insult by it, but you should know that your ability to comprehend your environment is very strongly defined by your belief in a number of illusions. Time, truth, love, that kind of thing. It isn't your fault, of course, but it does impose limits upon your ability to perceive and understand some matters. I'm only human, I said. So enlighten me. To do so, you would have to release your hold on mortality. I blinked and said, I'd have to die? She sighed. Again, you have only a partial understanding. But in the interest of expediency, yes, you would have to cease living. Then don't bother enlightening me, I said. I have plenty of would-be teachers already. I rinsed and repeated my shampoo and made myself smell like Irish spring. The survivors of the attacks, then, they're going to have taken a spiritual mauling. If the theory is correct, Lashiel's voice responded, if they are indeed wounded in spirit, it would seem conclusive. I shuddered. That kind of damage showed itself in a number of ways, and none of them were pretty. I'd seen men driven to agonies of madness by spiritual attacks. Murphy had been subjected to such an assault and spent years learning to cope with the night terrors it had spawned until the spiritual and psychological wounds had finally healed. I'd seen some who had been subjected to a psychic sandblasting by vampires of the Black Court who had become nearly mindless bodies, obeying orders and others of the same ilk who had turned into psychotic killing machines in service to their masters. The worst part of it all was that almost the only way for me to see something like that was to open my sight, which meant that every horribly mangled psyche I'd come across remained fresh and bright in my memory, always. The top shelf of my mental trophy case was getting crowded with hideous keepsakes. The not-truly-hot-water coursed over me, a small but suddenly significant comfort. Go away, I told Lashiel. Then I added, leave me the hot water, just this once. As you wish, the fallen angel's voice replied, polite satisfaction in her tone. The sense of her presence vanished entirely. I stayed in the shower until my fingers shriveled up. Or more accurately, I stayed there until the fingers of my right hand shriveled up. The skin of my burned left hand always looked withered and shriveled these days. The second I turned the water off, the full sensation of icy cold returned, and I shivered violently as I toweled off and got dressed. I took care of Mouse and Mister's various needs, ate several leftover biscuits from the fridge for breakfast, and opened a can of Coke. After a moment's thought, I headed down to my lab and grabbed Bob's skull from the shelf. Faint orange lights flickered in the sockets. Hey, Bob mumbled in a sleep-slurred voice. Where are we going? Investigating, I said. 
I went back upstairs with the skull and dropped it into my nylon backpack. I might need you today, but there are going to be straights around, so keep your mouth shut unless I open the pack. Okay, Bob said with a yawn, and the lights in the skull's eye sockets winked out again. I strapped on the magical arsenal, my shield bracelet, the energy ring, and my silver pentacle amulet. I slipped my newly carved blasting rod into a side pocket of the pack, leaving the handle out where I could reach up behind my right ear and whip it out in a hurry. I picked up my staff and eyed my leather duster, hanging on its hook by the door. I had layered spells over the duster in an effort to provide myself with a measure of protection against various fangs and claws and bullets and such, and as a result the coat had effectively become a suit of armor. But, like most suits of armor, it lacked its own air conditioning system. And if I wore it around in the blazing summer heat, I'd probably die of heat prostration before anyone had the chance to bite, slice, or shoot me. Hell, even the blue jeans I was wearing would feel too heavy long before noon. The duster stayed on its hook. That rattled me a little. I'm used to the duster. And the spells on its leather had saved my life before. It made me feel a little vulnerable to think of getting into some kind of supernatural conflict without it. So I grabbed Mouse's lead, much to the dog's tail-wagging approval, and clipped it onto his collar. You're with me today, I told him. I need someone to watch my back. Maybe to help me eat a hot dog later. Mouse's tail wagged even more at the mention of hot dogs. He chuffed out a breath, nudged my hip with the side of his head in a fond gesture, and we went outside to wait for Murphy. She pulled up an eyed mouse warily as I opened the back door and he jumped up onto the back seat. The car rocked back and forth with his weight and sank a little. He's car broken, right? Mouse wagged his tail and gave Murphy an enthusiastic, vacant, doggy grin, tilting his head back and forth quizzically. It was easy for my imagination to subtitle the look. Car broken? What is that? Wise ass, I muttered at the dog and got in the passenger side. Don't worry, Murph. We did an insane amount of work on the whole bodily function issue as soon as I realized how big he was going to get. He'll be good. I glared at the back seat. Won't you? Mouse gave me that same grin and puzzled tilting of his head. I frowned at him more deeply. He leaned forward to nuzzle my shoulder with his heavy muzzle and settled down in the back seat. Murphy sighed. If it was any other dog, I'd make him ride in the trunk. That's right, I said. You have dog issues. Big dog issues, Murphy corrected me. Just big dogs. Mouse isn't big. He's compactly challenged. She gave me an arch look as she pulled out and said, You'd fit in the trunk too, Harry. Then she frowned at me and said, Your lips are blue. Long shower, I said. She gave me a sudden, swift grin. Wanted to keep your mind on business? I think I'll interpret that as a compliment to my sexual appeal. I snorted and buckled in. You heard anything from the hospital? Murphy's smile faded and she kept her eyes on the road. She nodded without looking at me, her face impossible to read. Bad, huh? I asked. The young man the paramedics carried off died. The girl who was already down when he came in is going to make it, but she's in some kind of shock. Catatonic doesn't focus her eyes or anything. Just lies there. Yeah, I said quietly. I was sort of expecting that. What about the other girl, Rosie? 
Her injuries were painful, but not life-threatening. They closed the cuts and set the bones, but when they heard she was pregnant, they kept her at the hospital for observation. It looks like she'll come through without losing the child. She's awake and talking. That's something, I said. And Pell? Still in ICU. He's an old man, and his injuries were severe. They think he'll be all right as long as there aren't any complications. He's groggy, but he's conscious. I see you, I said. Any chance we could talk to him somewhere else? Those doctors can be real funny about not wanting people in critical condition to nip out for a walk to the vending machines, she said. I grunted. You might have to solo him then. I don't dare go walking in there with all the medical equipment around. Even if it was just for a few minutes, she asked. I shrugged. I don't have any control over when things break down, I paused and said. Well, not exactly. I could blow out the whole floor in a few seconds if I was trying to do it, but there's not much I can do to keep things from breaking down. Odds are good that if I was only in there for a few minutes, nothing bad would happen. But sometimes things go haywire the second I walk by them. I can't take any chances when there are people on life support. Murphy arched a brow at me and then nodded in understanding. Maybe we can get you on a speakerphone or something. Or something, I rubbed at my eyes. I think this is going to be a long day. Chapter 16 When you get right down to it, all hospitals tend to look pretty much the same. But Mercy Hospital, where the victims in the attack had been taken, somehow managed to avoid the worst of the sterile, disinfected, quietly desperate quality of many others. It was the oldest hospital in Chicago. The Sisters of Mercy had founded the place, and it remained a Catholic institution. The hospital was thought ridiculously large when it was first built, but the famous Chicago fires of the late 19th century filled Mercy to capacity. Doctors were able to handle six or seven times as many patients as any other hospital during the emergency, and everyone stopped complaining about how uselessly big the place was. There was a cop on guard in the hallway outside the victims' rooms in case the wacko costumed killer came after them again. He might also be there to discourage the press whenever they inevitably smelled the blood in the water and showed up for the frenzy. It did not surprise me much at all to see that the cop on guard was Rawlins. He was unshaven and still had his Splattercon name tag on. One of his forearms was bound up in neatly taped white bandages. But other than that, he looked surprisingly alert for someone who had been injured and then worked all through the night. Or maybe his weathered features just took such things in stride. Dresden, Rollins said from his seat. He dragged a chair to the hall's intersection. He was dedicated, not insane. You look better, except those bruises. The best ones always show up the day after, I said. God's truth, he agreed. Murphy looked back and forth between us. I guess you'll work with anybody, Harry. Shoot, Rollins drawled, smiling. Is that little Carrie Murphy I hear down there? I didn't bring my opera glasses to work today. She grinned back. What are you doing down here? Couldn't they find a real cop to watch the hall? He snorted, stuck his legs out, and crossed his ankles. I noted that for all of his indolent posture, his holstered weapon was clear and near his right hand. He regarded Mouse with pursed lips and said, Don't think dogs are allowed in here. He's a police dog, I told him. 
Rollins casually offered Mouse the back of one hand. Mouse sniffed it politely and his tail thumped against my legs. Hmm, Rollins drawled. Don't think I've seen them around the station. The dog's with me, I said. The wizard's with me, Murphy said. Makes him a police dog, all right, Rollins agreed. He jerked his head down the hall. Miss Marcilla is down that way. They got Pell and Miss Beckton in ICU. The boy they brought in didn't make it. Murphy grimaced. Thanks, Rollins. You're welcome, little girl, Rollins said, his deep voice grandfatherly. Murphy gave him a brief glare, and we went down the hall to visit the first of the victims. It was a single bedroom. Molly was there, in a chair beside the bed, where she had evidently been asleep while mostly sitting up. By the time I got in the room and shut the door, she was looking around blearily and mopping at the corner of her mouth with her sleeve. In the bed beside her was Rosie, small and pale. Molly touched the girl's arm and gently roused her. Rosie looked up at us and blinked a few times. Good morning, Murphy said. I hope you were able to get some rest. A little, the girl said, her voice raspy. She looked around, but Molly was already passing her a glass of water with a straw in it. Rosie sipped and then laid her head tiredly back and murmured a thank you to Molly. A little, she said again, her voice stronger. Who are you? My name is Karen Murphy. I'm a detective for the Chicago Police Department. She gestured at me and took a pen and a small notebook from her hip pocket. This is Harry Dresden. He's working with us on the case. Do you mind if he's here? Rosie licked her lips and shook her head. Her uninjured hand moved fitfully, stroking over the bandages on the opposite forearm in nervous motions. Murphy engaged the girl in quiet conversation. What are you doing here? Molly asked me in a half-whisper. Looking into things, I replied as quietly. There's something spooky going on. Molly chewed on her lip. You're sure? Definitely, I said. Don't worry, I'll find whatever hurt your friend. Friends, Molly said, emphasizing the plural. Have you heard anything about Ken, Rosie's boyfriend? No one will tell us anything. He the kid that they took from the scene? Molly nodded anxiously. Yes. I glanced at Murphy's back and didn't say anything. Molly got it. Her face went white and she whispered, Oh God, she'll be so... She folded her arms and shook her head several times. Then she said, I've got to... She looked around and in a louder voice said, I'm dying for coffee. Anyone else need some? Nobody did. Molly picked up her purse and turned around to walk for the door. In doing so, she brushed within a foot or two of Mouse. Instead of growling, though, Mouse leaned his head affectionately against her leg as she went by and cadged a few ear scratches from the girl before she left. I frowned at Mouse after Molly had gone. Are you going bipolar on me? He settled down again immediately. Murphy went on asking Rosie fairly predictable questions about the attack. The clock was running. I pushed the question about Mouse's odd behavior aside for the moment and let Mouse watch the door while I reached for my sight. It was a slight effort of concentration to push away the concerns of the material world, like aches and pains and bruises and why my dog was growling at Molly, and then the mere light and shadow and color of the everyday world dissolved into the riot of flowing energy and currents of light and power 
that lay beneath the surface. Murphy looked like Murphy had always looked beneath my sight. She appeared almost as herself, but clearer somehow, her eyes flashing, and she was garbed in a quasi-angelic tunic of white, stained in places with the blood and mud of battle. A short, straight sword, its blade made of almost viciously bright white light, hung beneath her left arm, where I knew her light cotton blazer hid her gun in its shoulder rig. She looked at me, and I could see her physical face as a vague shadow beneath the surface of the aspect I saw now. She smiled at me, a sunny light in it. Though her body's face remained a neutral mask, I was seeing the life, the emotion, behind her face now. I shied away from staring at her lest I make eye contact for too long, but that smile, at least, was something I wouldn't mind remembering. Rosie was another story. The physical Rosie was a small, slight, pale young woman with thin, frail features. The Rosie my sight revealed to me was entirely different. Pale skin became a pallid, dirty, leathery coating. Large, dark eyes looked even bigger and flicked around with darting avian jerks. They were furtive eyes, giving her the dangerous aspect of a stray dog or maybe some kind of rat the eyes of a craven, desperate survivor. Winding veins of some kind of green-black energy pulsed beneath her skin, particularly around the inside bend of her left arm. The writhing strings of energy ended at the surface of her skin, in dozens of tiny, mindlessly opening and closing little mouths, the needle tracks I'd seen the night before. Her right hand kept darting back and forth over the other arm as if trying to scratch a persistent itch, but her fingers couldn't touch. There was a kind of sheath of sparkling motes around her hands, almost like mittens, and she couldn't actually touch those mindlessly hungry mouths. Worse, there were what looked like almost burn marks on her temples, small black neat holes, as if someone had bored a hot needle through the skin and skull beneath. There was a kind of phantom blood around the injuries, but her eyes were wide and vague, as if she didn't even notice them. What the hell? I'd seen the victims of spiritual attacks before, and they'd never been pretty. Usually they looked like the victim of a shark attack, or someone who had been mauled by a bear. I hadn't ever seen someone with damage like Rosie's. It looked almost like some kind of demented surgeon had gone after her with a laser scalpel. That pushed the weirdometer a couple of clicks beyond the previous record. My head started pounding, and I pushed the sight away. I leaned my hip against the wall for a second and rubbed at my temples until the throbbing subsided, and I was sure that my normal vision had returned. Rosie, I said, cutting into the middle of one of Murphy's questions. When was your last fix? Murphy glanced over her shoulder at me, frowning. Behind her, the girl gave me a guilty look her eyes shifting to one side. What do you mean? Rosie asked. I figure it's heroin, I said. I kept my voice pitched to the barest level needed to be audible. I saw the tracks on you last night. I'm diabet, she began. Oh, please, I said, and let the annoyance show in my voice. You think I'm that stupid? Harry, Murphy began. There was a warning note in her voice, but my head hurt too much to let it stop me. Miss Marcella. 
I'm trying to help you. Just answer the question. She was silent for a long moment. Then she said, Two weeks. Murphy arched a brow and her gaze went back to the girl. I quit, she said. Really, I mean, once I heard that I was pregnant, I can't do that anymore. Really? I asked. She looked up and her eyes were direct, though nothing like confident. Yes, I'm done with it. I don't even miss it. The baby's more important than that. I pursed my lips and then nodded. All right. Miss Marcella, Murphy said, thank you for your time. Wait, she said as Murphy turned away. Please, no one will tell us anything about Ken. Do you know how he's doing, what room he's in? Ken's your boyfriend? Murphy asked in a careful tone. Yes. I saw them load him into the ambulance last night. I know he's here. Rosie stared at Murphy for a second, and then her face grew even more pale. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. I was glad I'd gotten a look at her before she found out about her boyfriend. My imagination provided me with a nice image of watching the emotional wounds open up, as though an invisible sword had begun slicing into her. But at least I didn't have to see it with my sight, too. I'm very sorry, Murphy said quietly. Her voice was steady, her eyes compassionate. Molly picked that moment to return with a cup of coffee. She took one look at Rosie, put the coffee down, and then hurried to her. Rosie broke down in choking sobs. Molly immediately sat on the bed beside her and hugged her while she wept. We'll be in touch, Murphy said quietly. Come on, Harry. Mouse stared at Rosie with a mournful expression, and I had to tug on his leash a couple of times to get him moving. We departed and headed for the nearest stairwell. Murphy headed for ICU, which was in the neighboring building. I didn't see the track marks on her last night, she said after a minute. You pushed her pretty hard. Yes. Why? Because it might mean something. I don't know what yet, but we didn't have time to waste listening to her denial. She wasn't straight with you, Murphy said. No one kicks heroin that fast. Two weeks. She should still be feeling some of the withdrawal. Yeah, I said. We went outside to go to the other building. Bright morning sunlight made my head hurt even more, and the sidewalk began revolving. I stopped to wait for my eyes to adjust to the light. You all right? Murphy asked. It's hard, seeing someone like that, I said quietly. And she's probably the least mangled of the three. She frowned. What did you see? I tried to tell her what Rosie had looked like. It sounded surreal and garbled, even to me. I didn't think I'd conveyed it very well. You look terrible, she said when I finished. It'll pass. Just got this damned headache. I shook my head and focused on taking steady breaths until I could force the pain to recede. Okay, I'm good. Did you learn what you were hoping for? Murphy asked. Not yet, I said. I'll need to look at the others, too. See if the injuries on them give me some kind of pattern. They're in ICU. Yeah, I need to find a way to them without getting too close to someone on life support. I can't stay around to talk. I'll need maybe a minute, 90 seconds to look at them both. Then I'll get out, let you talk. Murphy took a deep breath and said, You sure you should do this? 
No, I told her, but I can't help you if I don't get to look at them. I can't do that any other way. If I can stay calm and relaxed, it shouldn't hurt anything for me to be there for a minute or two. But you can't be sure. When can I? She frowned at me, but nodded. Let me go ahead of you, she said. Wait here. I found a chair and took it down the hall and sat down with Mouse and Rawlins, who had joined us. We shared a companionable silence. I leaned my head back against the wall and closed my eyes. My headache finally began to fade away, just as Murphy returned. All right, she said quietly. We need to go down the floor and then use the back stairs. A nurse is going to let us in. You won't have to walk past any of the other rooms before you get to our witnesses. Okay, I said and stood up. Let's get this over with. Chapter 17 I wasted no time. We went upstairs and I was already preparing my sight. A nurse opened the door to the stairway, and I simply stepped into the first door on my left, the catatonic girls, Miss Beckton's. I stepped into the doorway and raised my sight. She was a young girl, still in her late teens, nervously thin, her hair a shocking color of red that for some reason did not strike me as a dye job. She lay on her front, her head turned to the side, muddy brown eyes open and blank. Her back had been covered in bandages. As my sight focused on her, I saw more. The girl's psyche had been savagely mauled, and as I watched her, phantom bruises darkened a few patches of skin that remained, and blood and watery fluids oozed from the rest of her torn flesh. Her mouth was set in a continual, silent wail, and beneath the real-world glaze, her eyes were wide with terror. If there'd been enough left of her behind those eyes, Miss Beckton would have been screaming. My stomach rolled, and I barely spotted a trash can in time to throw up into it. Murphy crouched down at my side, her hand on my back. Harry, are you okay? Anger and empathy and grief warred for first place in my thoughts. Across the room, I was dimly conscious of a clock radio, warbling to life and dying in a puff of smoke. The room's fluorescent lights began to flicker as the violent emotions played hell with the aura of magic around me. No, I said in a vicious half-strangled growl. I'm not okay. Murphy stared at me for a second and then looked at the girl. Is she... she isn't coming back, I said. I spat a few times into the trash can and stood up. My headache started to return. The girl's terrified eyes stayed bright and clear in my imagination. She'd been out for a fun time, a favorite movie, maybe coffee or dinner with friends afterward. She sure as hell hadn't woken up yesterday morning and wondered if today would be the day some kind of nightmarish thing would rip away her sanity. Harry, Murphy said again, her voice very gentle. You didn't do this to her. Damn it, I said. I sounded bitter. She found my right hand with hers, and I closed my fingers around hers with a kind of quiet desperation. Damn it, Murph. I'm going to find this thing and kill it. 
Her hand was steady and strong, like her voice. I'll help. I nodded and held tight to her hand for a minute. There wasn't any tension in that contact, no quivering sensation of excitement. Murphy was human and alive. She held my hand to remind me that I was too. I somehow managed to push the sense of visceral horror I'd seen filling the girl from my immediate thoughts until I felt steadier. I squeezed her hand once and released it. Come on, I said, my voice rough. Pell. Are you sure you don't need a minute? It won't help, I said. I gestured at the radio and the lights. I need to get this over with and leave. She chewed on her lip but nodded at me and led me to the door across the hall. I didn't want to do it, but I hauled up my sight again and braced myself as I followed on Murphy's heels and looked at Clark Pell. Pell was a sour-looking old cuss made out of shoe leather and gristle. One arm and both legs were in casts and he was in traction. One side of his face was swollen with bruising. A plastic tube for oxygen ran beneath his nose. Bandages swathed his head, though bits of coarse gray hair stuck out. One eye was swollen mostly shut. The other was open, dark and glittering. Beyond the physical surface, his wounds were very nearly as dire as those the girl had suffered. He had been brutally beaten. Phantom bruises slid around his wrinkled skin, and the shapes of distorted bones poked disquietingly at the surface. And I saw something about the old man, too. Beneath the shoe leather and gristle, there were more shoe leather and gristle. And iron. The old man had been badly beaten, but it wasn't the first such he had endured, physically or spiritually. He was a fighter, a survivor. He was afraid, but he was also angry and defiant. Whatever had done this to him hadn't gotten what it wanted, not like it had with the girl. It had to settle for a physical beating when its attack hadn't elicited the terror and anguish it had expected. The old man had faced it and he didn't have any power of his own, beyond a lifetime of stubborn will. If he'd done it, as painful and as frightening as it must have been, I could steel myself against looking at the aftermath. I released my sight slowly and took a deep breath. Murphy, poised beside me as if she expected me to abruptly collapse, tilted her head and peered at me. I'm all right, I told her quietly. Pell made a weak but rude sound. <laughs> Whiner, not even a cast. I faced the old man and said, Who did this to you? He shook his head, a feeble motion. Crazy. Murphy started to say something, but I raised my hand and shook my head at her, and she fell silent, waiting. Sir, I said to Pell, I swear to you I'm not a cop, I'm not a doctor. I think you saw something strange. He stared at me, his one eye narrowed. Didn't you? I asked quietly. Ha! Ha! He tried to say, but the word broke into a racking, quiet cough. I held up my hand and waited for him to recover. Then I said, Hammer hands. Pell's lip lifted, a faint little sneer. His good hand moved weakly, and I stepped over closer to him, 
You told Green it was someone dressed like Hammer Hands, I guessed. Pell closed his eyes tiredly. Pretty much. I nodded. But it wasn't just a costume, I said quietly. This was something more. Pell gave a slow shudder before opening his eye again, dull with fatigue. It was him, the old man whispered. Don't know how. Don't make no sense. But you could feel it. I believe you, I told him. He watched me for a second and then nodded, closing his eye. Thing is, that was the only damn movie ever scared me. Wasn't even all that good. He gave a weak shake of his head and said, Buzz off. Thank you, I told him quietly. Then I turned and walked toward the door. Murphy followed at my side and we headed back down the stairs. Harry, she asked. What was that? Pell, I said. He gave us what we needed. He did? Yeah, I said. I think he did. This thing's got to be some kind of phobophage. A what? It's a spiritual entity that feeds on fear. It attacks in order to scare people and feeds on the emotion. It didn't give Pell those broken bones by shouting boo, Murphy said. Yeah, it's got to manifest a physical body in order to come to the real world. Pretty standard for all those demon types. How do we beat it? I shook my head. I don't know yet. First, I have to find out what kind of phobophage it is. But I've got a place to pick up a trail now. There are only going to be so many beings who could have crossed over to Chicago from the Never Never to do what this thing did. We emerged into the sunshine and I stopped for a minute, lifting my face up to the light. The horror and misery I'd seen on the victims remained in place, a clear and terrible image. But the sunlight and the equally sharp memory of old Pell's defiance took the edge off. You gonna be all right? Murphy asked. I think so, I said quietly. Can you tell me what you saw? I did, in as few words as I could. She listened and then nodded slowly. It hardly seems like what happened to them happened to Rosie. Maybe Rollins and I got there in time, I said. Maybe it hadn't had time to do more than a little foreplay. Or maybe there's another reason, Murphy said. Remind me to lecture you about the interest rate on borrowed trouble, I said. Simplest explanation is the one to go with until we find out something to the contrary. Murphy nodded. If this creature hit the convention twice, it will probably do it again. Seems to me that maybe we should advise them to close it down. No convention, no attacks, right? Too late for that, I said. She tilted her head. What do you mean? The creature feeds on fear. It's attracted to it, I said. If they shut down the convention, it'll scare a lot of people. News reports will do that, too. Not the same way, I said. A news report might unsettle some folks, but the people at the convention here, the ones who knew the victims, who were in the same buildings, it'll hit them harder. It will make what happened here something dangerous, something real. If the attacker is that dangerous, they should be afraid, Murphy said. Except that intense fear will attract the attacker again, I said. In fact, enough of it would attract more predators of the same nature. 
More? Murphy said, her voice sharp. Like blood in the water draws in sharks, I said. Only instead of being at the convention, the targets will be scattered all over Chicago. Right now, the only advantage we have is that we know generally where the thing is going to strike again. If the convention closes, we lose that advantage. And the next chance we get to pick up its trail will be when the next corpse turns up. Murphy shook her head. What do you need from me? For now, a ride home, I said. I'll have some consulting to do, and... I suddenly ground my teeth. Damn it, I almost forgot. What? I've got a lunch meeting I can't miss. More important than this, she asked. I can't let it slide, I said. Council stuff may be important. She shook her head. You take too much responsibility on yourself, Harry. You're just one man. A good man, but you're still only human. This is what happens when I don't wear the coat, I opined. People start thinking I'm not a superhero. She snorted, and we started back toward her car. I'm serious, she said. You can't be everywhere at once. You can't stop all the bad things that are going to happen. Doesn't mean someone shouldn't try, I said. Maybe. But you take it personal. You tear yourself up over it, like with that girl just now. She shook her head. I hate to see you like that. You've got worries enough without beating yourself up for things you didn't do. I shrugged and fell quiet until we got back to the car, and then I said, I just can't stand it. I can't stand seeing people get hurt like that. I hate it. She regarded me steadily and nodded. Me too. Mouse thumped his head against my leg and leaned on me so that I could feel his warmth. That settled, we all got into Murphy's car so that I could track down I knew not what. Just as soon as I got done opening an entirely new can of worms with the summer night. Chapter 18 At my request, Murphy dropped me off a couple of blocks from home so that I could give Mouse at least a little chance to stretch his legs. He seemed appreciative and walked along, sniffing busily, his tail fanning the air. I kept a watch out behind me, meanwhile, but my unknown tail did not appear. I kept an eye out for any other people or vehicles that might have been following me, in case he was working with a team, but I didn't spot anyone suspicious. That didn't stop me from keeping a paranoid eye over my shoulder until we made it back to the old boarding house, and I went down the stairs to my apartment door. I muttered my defensive wards down, temporarily neutralizing powerful constructions of magic that I'd placed around my apartment shortly after the beginning of the war with the Red Court. I opened the deadbolt on the steel door, twisted the handle, and then slammed my shoulder into the door as hard as I could to open it. The door flew open to a distance of five or six whole inches. I kicked it a few times to open it the rest of the way, then tromped in with Mouse, and looked up to find the barrel of a chopped-down shotgun six inches from my face. Those things are illegal, you know, I said. Thomas scowled at me from the other end of the shotgun and lowered the weapon. I heard a metallic click as he put the safety back on. You've got to get that door fixed. Every time you come in, it sounds like an assault team. Boy, I replied, letting Mouse off his lead. One little siege and you get all paranoid. What can I say? He turned and slipped the shotgun into his bulging sports bag, which sat on the floor by the door. I never counted on starring in my own personal zombie movie, 
Don't kid yourself, I said. Mister flew across the room and pitched all thirty pounds of himself into a friendly shoulder block against my legs. It was my movie. You were a spear carrier, a supporting role, tops. It's nice to be appreciated, he said. Beer? Sure. Thomas sauntered over to the icebox. He was wearing jeans, sneakers, and a white cotton t-shirt. I frowned at the sports bag. His trunk, an old military surplus footlocker, sat on the ground beside the bag, padlocked shut. Between the trunk and the bag, I figured pretty much every material possession he owned now sat on the floor by my door. He came back over to me with a couple of cold brown bottles of Max Ale and flicked the tops off of both of them at the same time with his thumbs. Mac would kill you if he knew you were chilling it. I took my bottle, studying his face, but his expression gave away little. Mac can come over here and install air conditioning then, if he wants me to drink it warm in the middle of summer. Thomas chuckled. We clinked bottles and drank. You're leaving, I said a minute later. He took another sip and said nothing. You weren't going to tell me, I said. He rolled a shoulder in a shrug, then he nodded at an envelope on the fireplace's mantel. My new address and phone number. There's some money in there for you. Thomas, I said. He swigged beer and shook his head. No, take it. You offered to let me stay with you until I got on my feet. I've been here almost two years. I owe you. No, I said. He frowned. Harry, please. I stared at him for a minute, and then struggled with a bunch of conflicting emotions. Part of me was childishly relieved that I would have my tiny apartment to myself again. A much larger part of me felt suddenly empty and worried. Still, another part felt a sense of excitement and happiness for Thomas. Ever since he started crashing on my couch, Thomas had been recovering from wounds of his own. For a while there, I had feared that despair and self-loathing were going to cause him to implode, and I had somehow known that his desire to get out on his own was a sign of recovery. Part of that recovery, I was sure, was Thomas regaining a measure of pride and self-confidence. That's why he'd left the money on the mantle. Pride. I couldn't turn down the money without taking that pride from him. Except for scattered memories of my father, Thomas was the only blood family I'd ever had. Thomas had faced danger and death beside me without hesitation, had guarded me in my sleep, tended me when I'd been injured, and once in a while, he'd even cooked. We got on each other's nerves sometimes, sure, but that hadn't ever altered the fundamental fact of who we were to one another. We were brothers. Everything else was temporary. I met his eyes and asked quietly, Are you going to be all right? He smiled a little and shrugged. I think so. I tilted my head. Where'd the money come from? My job. I lifted my eyebrows. You found a job you could hold? He winced a little. Sorry, I said, but I know you'd had so much trouble. Specifically, he'd been subjected to the amorous attentions of various fellow employees who had been drawn to him to such a degree that it had practically been assault. Being an incubus was probably easier at nightclubs and celebrity parties than at a drive through or a cash register. You found something? Something without people, he said.
He smiled easily as he spoke, but I sensed an undercurrent of deception in it. He wasn't telling me the whole truth. I've been there a while. Yeah, I asked. Where? He evaded me effortlessly. A place down off Lakeview. I finally earned a little extra. I just wanted to pay you back. You must be getting all kinds of overtime, I said. As near as I can figure it, you've been putting in eighty and ninety-hour weeks. He shrugged, his smile a mask. Working hard. I took another sip of beer, which was excellent, even cold, and thought it over. If he didn't want to talk about it, he wasn't going to talk about it. Pushing him wouldn't make him any more likely to tell me. I didn't get the sense that he was in trouble, and while he had one hell of a poker face, I'd lived with him long enough to see through it most of the time, Thomas hadn't ever supported himself before. Now that he was sure he could do it, it had become something he valued. Getting out on his own was something he needed to do. I wouldn't be doing him any favors by interfering. You sure you'll be okay? I asked him. Something showed through the mask, then. Embarrassment. I'll be all right. It's past time for me to get out on my own. Not if you aren't ready, I said. Harry, come on. So far we've been lucky. The council hasn't noticed me here. But with all of your warden stuff, sooner or later someone's going to show up and find you rooming with a white court vampire. I grimaced. That would be a mess, I agreed. But I don't mind chancing it if you need the time. And I don't mind getting out on my own to avoid making trouble for you with the council, he said. Besides, I'm just covering my own ass. I don't want to cross them myself. I wouldn't let them... Thomas burst out in a brief, genuine laugh. <laughs> Christ, Harry. You're my brother, not my mother. I'll be fine. Now that I won't be here to make you look bad, maybe you can finally start having girls over again. Bite me, pretty boy, I said. You need any help moving or anything? Nah, he finished the beer. I just have one box and one bag. Cab's on the way. He paused. Unless you need my help with a case or something, I've got until Monday to move in. I shook my head. Uh, I'm working with SI on this one, so I've got plenty of support. I think I can get things locked down by tonight. Thomas gave me a flat look. Now you've done it. What? I asked. You predicted quick victory. Now it's going to get hopelessly complicated. Jesus, don't you know any better than that by now? I grinned at him. You'd think I would. I finished my beer and offered my brother my hand. He gripped it. If you need anything, call me, he said. Ditto. Thank you, little brother, he said quietly. I blinked my eyes a couple of times. Yeah, my couch is always open, unless there's a girl over. Outside, wheels crunched on gravel and a car horn sounded. There's my ride, he said. Oh, do you mind if I borrow the shotgun, just until I can replace it? Go ahead, I told him. I've still got my forty-four. Thanks. He bent over and swung the heavy footlocker onto one shoulder without effort. He picked up the sports bag, slung the strap over his other shoulder, and opened the door easily with one hand. He glanced back, winked at me, and shut the door behind him. I stared at the closed door for a minute. Car doors opened and closed. Wheels crunched as the cab drove away. 
and my apartment suddenly seemed a couple of sizes too large. Mouse let out a long sigh and came over to me to nudge his head underneath my hand. I scratched his ears for a minute and said, He'll be all right. Don't worry about him. Mouse sighed again. I'll miss him too, I told the dog. Then I shook myself and told Mouse, Don't get comfortable. We're going to go visit Mac. You can meet the summer night. I went around getting everything I needed for a formal meeting with the summer night, called another cab, and sat in my too-quiet apartment, wondering what it was my brother was hiding from me. Chapter 19 McAnally's pub is on the bottom floor of a building not too far from my office. Chicago being what it is, essentially a giant swamp with a city sinking into it, the building had settled over the years, and to enter the pub, you had to come in the door and take a couple of steps down. It's a low-ceilinged room, or at least it's always felt that way to me, and it offers the added attraction of several whirling ceiling fans at my eye level just as I come in the door, and after stepping down into the room, they're still uncomfortably close to my head. There's a sign Max got hanging up at the door that reads, Accorded Neutral Ground. It means that the place was supposed to be a no-combat zone, under the terms laid out in the Unseelie Accords, the most recent and influential set of principles agreed upon by most of the various nations of the supernatural maybe ten or twelve years ago. By the terms of the Accords, there's no fighting allowed between members of opposing nations in the bar, and we're not supposed to attempt to provoke anybody either. If things do get hostile, the Accords say you have to take it outside or risk censure by the signatory nations. More importantly, at least to me, Mac was a friend. When I came to his place to eat, I considered myself a guest, and he my host. I'd abide by his declared neutrality out of simple respect, but it was good to know that the Accords were there in the background. Not every member of the supernatural community is as polite and neighborly as me. Mac's place is one big room. There are a baker's dozen of thick wooden support pillars spread through the room, each of them carved with figures from old-world nursery tales. There's a bar with thirteen stools, thirteen tables spread irregularly throughout the room, and the whole place has an informal, comfortable, asymmetrical sort of feel to it. I came through the door, armed for bear, and projecting an attitude to match. I bore my staff in my left hand, and I'd slipped my new blasting rod, a shaft of wood two feet long and as thick as my two thumbs together, through my belt. My shield bracelet hung on my left hand, my force ring was on my right, and Mouse walked on my right side on his lead, looking huge and sober and alert. A couple of people inside looked at my face and immediately tried to look like they had no interest in me. I wasn't in a bad mood but I wanted to look that way. Since the war with the Red Court had gotten rolling, I had learned the hard way that predators, human and otherwise, sense fear and look for weakness. So I walked into the place like I was hoping to kick someone in the neck, because it was a hell of a lot easier to discourage potential predators ahead of time than it was to slug it out with them when they followed me out afterward. I crossed the room to the bar, and Mac nodded at me, Mac was a lean man, somewhere between thirty and fifty. He wore his usual dark clothes and spotless white apron, while simultaneously managing all the bartending 
and a big wood-burning grill where he cooked various dishes for the customers. The summer heat was fairly well blunted by the shade and the fans and the partially subterranean nature of the room, but there were still dark spots of sweat on his clothes and beating along the bare skin of his scalp. Mac knew what the tough guy face was about, and it clearly didn't bother him. He nodded to me as I sat down on a stool. Mac, you got any cold beer back there somewhere? He gave me an unamused look. I leaned my staff on the bar, lifted both hands in a placating gesture, and said, Kidding, but tell me you got cold lemonade. It's a zillion degrees out there. He answered with a glass of lemonade, cooled with his patented lemonade ice cubes, so that he could drink it cold and not have it get watered down, all at the same time. Mac is pretty much a genius when it comes to drinks, and his steak sandwiches should be considered some kind of national resource. Business? he asked me. I nodded. Meeting with Fix. Mac grunted and went out to a corner table, one with a clear view of the door. He nudged it out a bit from the wall, polished it with a cloth, and straightened the chairs around it. I nodded my thanks to him and settled down at the table with my lemonade. I didn't have long to wait. A couple of minutes before noon, the summer night opened the door and came in. Fix had grown, and I mean that literally. He'd been about five foot three, maybe an inch or so higher. Now he had towered up to at least five nine. He'd been a wiry little guy with white blonde hair, and most of that remained true. The wire had thickened to lean cable, but the shock of spikes he'd worn as a hairdo had gotten traded in on a more typical cut for fairy nobles, a shoulder-length do. Fix hadn't been a good-looking guy, and the extra height and muscle and the hair did absolutely nothing to change that. What had changed was his previous manner, which had been approximately equal parts nervous and cheerful. The summer night projected confidence and strength. They shone from him like light from a star. When he opened the door, the dim shadows retreated somewhat and a whispering breeze that smelled of pine and honeysuckle rolled through the room. The air around him did something to the light, throwing it back cleaner, more pure, more fierce than it had been before it touched him. Fix wasn't putting on a face like I had. This was what he had become. The summer night, mortal champion of the Seely Court. A thunderstorm in blue jeans and a green cotton shirt. His gaze went first to Mac, and he gave the barkeep a polite little bow of respect. Then he turned to me, grinned, and nodded. Harry. Fix, I said. Been a while. You've grown. He looked down at himself and looked briefly like the flustered young man I had first met. It sort of snuck up on me. Life has a way of doing that, I agreed. I hope you don't mind. Someone else wanted to speak to you, too. He turned his head and said something, and a breath later the summer lady entered the tavern. Lily had never been hard on the eyes. The daughter of one of the she and a mortal, she'd had the looks usually reserved for magazines and movie stars. But, like Fix, she had grown. Not physically, though a somewhat juvenile eye might have made certain comparisons to the past and somehow found them even more appealing. What had changed most was the bashful uncertainty that had filled her every word and movement. 
The old Lily had hardly been able to take care of herself. This was the Summer Lady, youngest of the Seely Queens, and when she came in the room, the whole place suddenly seemed more alive. The lingering taste of lemonade on my tongue became more intensely sour and sweet. I could hear every whisper of wind around every lazily spinning fan blade in the room, and all of them murmured gentle music together. She wore a simple sundress of green, starkly contrasting the silken waterfall of purest white tresses that fell to her waist. More than that, she carried around her a sense of purpose, a kind of quiet, gentle strength, something as steady and warming and powerful as summer sunlight. Her face, too, had gained character. The awkward shyness in her eyes replaced with a kind of gentle perception, a continual quiet laughter leavened with just a touch of sadness. She stepped forward between two of the carved wooden columns, and the flowers wrought into the wood upon them twitched and then burst into sudden blooms of living color. Everyone there, myself included, stopped breathing for a second. Mac recovered first. Lily, he said, and bowed his head to her. Good to see you. She smiled warmly at his use of her name. Mac, she replied. Do you still make those lemonade ice cubes? Two, Fix said, grinning more broadly. He offered his arm to Lily, and she laid her hand upon it, both gestures so familiar to them that they didn't need to think about them anymore. They came over to the table, and I rose politely until Fix had seated Lily. Then we mere menfolk sat down again. Mac came with drinks and departed. So, Fix said, what's up, Harry? Lily sipped lemonade through a straw. I tried not to stare and drool. Um, I've been asked to get in touch with you, I said. After the Red Court's attack last year, when they encroached on fairy territory, we were kind of expecting a response. We were wondering why there hadn't been one. We meaning the council? Lily asked quietly. Her voice was calm, but something just under its surface warned me that the answer might be important. We, meaning me and some people I know. This isn't exactly, um, official. Fix and Lily exchanged a look. She nodded once, and Fix exhaled and said, Good, good. I was hoping that would be the case. I am not permitted to speak for the summer court to the White Council, Lily explained. But you have a prior claim of friendship to both myself and my knight. And there is nothing to prevent me from speaking to an old friend regarding troubled times. I glanced back and forth between them for a moment before I said, So why haven't the she laid the smackdown on the red court? Lily sighed. A complicated matter. Just start at the beginning and explain it from there, I suggested. Which beginning, she asked, and whose? I felt my eyebrows arch up. Hells, bells, Lily. I wasn't expecting the usual she-word games from you. Calm, remote beauty covered her face like a mask. I know. Seems to me that you're a couple of points in the red when it comes to favors given and received, I said, between that mess in Oklahoma and your predecessor. I know, 
she said again, her expression showing me less than nothing. I leaned back into my chair for a second, glaring at her, feeling that same old frustration rising. Damn, but I hated trying to deal with the she. Summer or winter, they were both an enormous pain in the ass. Harry, Fix said with gentle emphasis, she isn't always free to speak. Like hell she isn't, I said. She's the summer lady. But Titania is the summer queen, Fix told me. And if you'll forgive me for pointing out something so obvious, it wasn't so long ago that you murdered Titania's daughter. What does that have to do with anything? I began, but snapped my lips closed over the last word. Of course. When Lily had become the summer lady, she got the whole package, and it went way beyond simply turning her hair white. She would have to follow the bizarre set of limits and rules to which all of the fairy queens seemed bound. And more importantly, it meant she would have to obey the more powerful queens of summer, Titania and Mother Summer. Are you telling me that Titania has ordered you both not to help me? I asked them. They stared back at me with fairy poker faces that told me nothing. I nodded, beginning to understand. You aren't permitted to speak officially for summer, and Titania's laid some kind of compulsion on you both to prevent you from helping me on a personal level, I said, hasn't she? Had there been crickets, I would have heard them clearly. Had my table companions been statues, I'd have gotten more reaction from them. You're not supposed to help me. You're not supposed to tell me about the compulsion. I followed the chain of logic a step further. But you want to help, so here you are. Which means that the only way I could get information out of you is to approach it indirectly, or else the compulsion would force you to shut up. Am I close? Cheap, cheap. If it went on much longer, they'd have to worry about inbound pigeons. I frowned a little and thought about it for a minute. Then I asked, Theoretically speaking, I said, what kind of things might prevent winter and summer from reacting to an incursion by another nation? Lily's eyes sparkled and she nodded to fix. The little guy turned to me and said, In theory, only a few things could do it. The simplest would be a lack of respect for the strength of the incurring nation. If the queens considered them no threat, there would be no need to act. Uh-huh, I said, go on. A much more serious reason would be an issue of the balance of power between the courts of summer and winter. Any reaction to the invasion would alter what resources one would have at hand. If one court did not act in concert with the other, it would provide an ideal opportunity for a surprise assault while the other had its strategic back turned. I rubbed my hands along my thighs, squinting one eye shut. Let me see if I've put this together right. Summer's ready to throw down, but winter isn't going to help, because apparently they'd rather take a poke at you guys when you were focused on another threat. I took Fix's silence as an affirmative. That's insane, I said. If that happens, both courts are going to suffer. Both of you will be weakened. No matter who came out on top, they'd be easy pickings for the Reds, theoretically speaking. An imbalance between winter and summer is nothing new, Lily said. It has existed since the time when we first met you, Harry. 
It continues today because of the fate of the current winter night. I grimaced. Christ, he's still alive after, what, almost four years? Fix shuddered. I saw him once. The man was a psycho, a drug addict, and a murderer. And a rapist, Lily interjected in a quiet, sad voice. And that, Fix agreed, his expression grim. I could break his neck and not lose a minute's sleep. But no one deserves... He swallowed, his face going pale. That. A moron betrayed Mab, I said quietly. He knew the risks when he did it. No, Fix said with another shudder. Believe me, Harry, he didn't know what would happen to him. He couldn't have. Fix's obvious discomfort made a certain impression on me, especially given that Mab had displayed an unnerving amount of interest in me, and that I still owed her a couple of favors. I shifted uneasily in my chair and tried to blow it off. Whatever, I said. There's a summer night, there's a winter night. What's unbalanced about that? He isn't exerting his power, Fix replied. He's a prisoner, and everyone knows it. He has no freedom, no will. He can't stand on the side of winter as its champion. So far as the tension between the courts goes, the winter night might as well not exist. All right, I murmured. Mab's got a man in the penalty box. She wants to take the offensive before Summer pushes a power play, and she's looking for ways to even the odds. If Summer goes running off to take on the Reds, it'll give her a chance to strike. I shook my head. I don't pretend to know Mab very well, but she isn't suicidal. If the imbalance is so dangerous, why is she keeping the winter night alive to begin with? And she must see what the consequences of another winter-summer war would be. I looked back and forth between them. Right? Unfortunately, Lily said quietly, our intelligence about the internal politics of winter is very limited. And Mab is not the sort to reveal her mind to another. I do not know if she realizes the potential danger. Her actions of late have been... She closed her eyes for a moment and then said, with some obvious effort, erratic. I propped up my chin on the heel of my hand, thinking. Mab's a lot of things, I said thoughtfully. But she sure as hell isn't erratic. She's like some damn big glacier. Not a thing you can do to stop her, but at least you know just how she's going to move. What does the bard say? Constant as the northern star? Fix frowned, as if struggling with an internal decision for a minute, then let out an exasperated sigh and said, I think many who know the she would agree with you. Which was neither a confirmation or a denial, technically, at any rate. But then she magic and bindings tended to lean heavily toward the technical details. I sat back slowly again, thoughts flickering over dozens of ideas and bits of information, putting them together into a larger picture. And it wasn't a pretty one. The last time one of the fairy queens had come a little bit unbalanced, the situation had become a potential global catastrophe on the same order of magnitude as a middling large meteor impact, or a limited nuclear exchange. And that had been the youngest queen of the gentler and more reasonable summer, Lily's predecessor, Aurora. The late Aurora, I suppose. 
If Mab had blown a gasket, matters wouldn't be just as bad. They would be worse. A lot worse. I've got to know more about this one, I told them quietly. I know, Lily said. She lifted her hand to a temple and closed her eyes in a faint frown of pain. But she shook her head and fell silent again as Titania's binding sealed her tongue. I glanced at Fix, who managed to whisper, Sorry, Harry, before he too closed his eyes and looked vaguely ill. I need answers, I murmured, thinking aloud. But you can't give them to me, and there can't be all that many people to know what's going on. Silence and faint expressions of pain. After a few seconds, Fix said, I think we've done all we can here. I racked my brains for a few seconds more and then said, No, you haven't. Lily opened her eyes and looked at me, arching a perfect silver-white brow. I need someone with the right information and who isn't under a compulsion not to help me. And I can only think of one person who fits the bill. Lily's eyes widened a second after I got done speaking. Can you do it? I asked her, right now. She chewed her lower lip for a second then nodded. Call her, I said. Fix looked back and forth between us. I don't understand. What are you doing? Something stupid, probably, I said. But this is too big. I need more information. Lily closed her eyes and folded her hands on her lap, her expression relaxing into one of deep concentration. I could feel the subtle stir of energy around her. My stomach rumbled. I asked Mac to whip me up a steak sandwich and settle down to wait. It didn't take long. My sandwich wasn't halfway done when Mouse let out a sudden rumbling growl of warning and the temperature in the bar dropped about ten degrees. The whirling ceiling fans let out mechanical moans of protest and spun faster. Then the door opened and let in sunlight made wan by a patch of dreary gray clouds. The light cast a slender, black silhouette. Fix's eyes narrowed, his hands slid casually out of sight beneath the table, and he said, Oh, her. The young woman who entered the bar could have been Lily's sister. She had the same exotic beauty, the same canted feline eyes, the same pale, flawless skin. But this one's hair was worn in long, ragged strands of varying lengths, like a Raggedy Ann doll. Each one dyed a slightly different color from frozen seas, pale blues and greens, as though each had borrowed its color from a different glacier. Her eyes were a cold, brilliant shade of green, almost entirely darkened by pupils, dilated as though with drugs or arousal. A slender silver hoop gleamed at one side of her nose, and a collar of black leather studded with silver snowflakes encircled the graceful line of her slender throat. She wore sandals and cut-off blue-jean shorts, very cut-off and very tight. A tight white T-shirt strained across her chest and read in pale blue letters stretched into intriguing curves, Your boyfriend wants me. She prowled across the room to us, all hips and lips and fascinating eyes, 
looking far too young to move with such wanton sensuality. I knew better. She could have been a century old. She chose to look the way she did because of what she was. The Winter Lady, youngest queen of the unseely court, Mab's understudy in wickedness and power. When she walked by the flowers that had bloomed in Lily's presence, they froze over, withered, and died. She gave them no more notice than Lily had. Harry Dresden, she said, her voice low, lulling, and sweet. And I said, Hello, Maeve. Chapter 20 Maeve stared at me for a long minute and licked her lips. Look at you, she all but purred. All pent up like that. You haven't had a woman in ages, have you? I hadn't. I really, really hadn't. But that wasn't the kind of thinking that a professional investigator allowed to clog up the gears in his brain. I could have said something back, but I decided that if I ignored the taunt, maybe she'd get bored and leave me alone. So instead of taking up the verbal epe, I rose and drew out a chair for her, politely. Sit with us, Maeve? Her head tilted almost all the way to her shoulder. She stared at me with those intense green eyes. Just boiling over. Maybe you and I should have a private talk. Just the two of us. My libido seconded the suggestion, and heartily. My libido and I generally don't see eye to eye. Damn it. I'd rather just sit and have a nice chat, I said to her. Liar, Maeve said, smiling. I sighed. All right, there are a lot of things I'd love to do, but the only thing that's going to happen is a nice chat. So you might as well sit down and let me get you a drink. Her head tilted the other way. Her hips shifted in a kind of counterpoint that drew the eye. How long has it been for you, wizard? How long since you sated yourself? The answer was depressing. Last time I saw Susan, I guess. Maeve made a disgusted sound. <clears throat> no, not love, wizard. Need. Flesh. The two aren't mutually exclusive, I said. She waved that off with an expression of contempt. I want an answer. Looks to me like there's all kinds of things you want that you aren't going to get, I told her. I glanced at Fix and Lily, throwing a mute appeal into it. Fix gave me an apologetic shrug, and Lily sighed. You might as well indulge her, Harry. She's as stubborn as any of us. The only one who might give you the answers you need. And she knows it. I looked back at Maeve, who gave me that same eerie, intensely sensual smile. Tell me, mortal, when was the last time flesh, new and strange to your hand, lay quivering beneath you, hmm? She leaned down until her eyes were inches from mine. I could smell winter mint and something lush and corrupt, like rotted flowers on her breath. When was the last time you could taste and feel some little lovely's cries. I regarded her without any expression and said in a gentle voice, Technically, 
when I killed Aurora. Maeve's expression flickered with an instant of uncertainty. You remember Aurora, I told her quietly. The last summer lady, your peer, your equal. When she died, she'd been cut several dozen times with cold iron. She was bleeding out, but she was still trying to stick a knife in Lily, so I tackled her and held her down. She kept struggling until she lost too much blood. And then she died in the grass on the hill of the stone table. Dead silence filled the whole place. It sort of surprised me, I said, never putting any particular emotion on the words. How fast it happened. It surprised her, too. She was confused when she died. Maeve only stared at me. I never wanted to kill her, but she didn't leave me any choice. I let the silence fill the room for a moment and stared at Maeve's eyes. The winter lady swallowed and eased her weight a tiny bit away from me. Then I gestured with one hand at the chair I still held out for her and said, Let's be polite to one another, Maeve. Please. She took a slow breath, soulless, inhuman eyes on mine, and then said, I know now why Mab wants you. She straightened and gave me an odd little bow, which might have looked more courtly had she been wearing a gown. Then she sat and said, Does the barkeep still have those sweet lemon chips of ice? Of course, I said. Mac, another lemonade for the lady, please. Mac provided it in his usual silence. As he did, the few people who were in the place cleared out. Most of the magical community of Chicago knew the ladies by reputation, if not on sight, and they wanted nothing to do with any kind of incident between winter and summer. They were safer if they were never noticed. Hell, if I could have snuck out, I would have led the way. When I defeated Aurora, there had been a healthy chunk of luck involved. I caught her with a sucker punch. If she'd been focused on taking me out instead of finishing her scheme... I doubt I would have survived the evening. Sure, I might have stared Maeve down, but ultimately I was bluffing. Trying to fool the oncoming shark into thinking I might be something that could eat it. If the shark decided to start taking bites anyhow, things would get unpleasant for me. But this time, at least, the shark didn't know that. Maeve wrapped her lips idly around the straw and sipped. Then she settled back into her seat chewing. Crunching sounds came from her mouth. The lemonade had frozen solid when it passed her lips. Which made me feel pretty damn smart for avoiding the whole sexual temptation issue. Maeve looked at Lily steadily as she chewed and then said to me, You know, my last night often dragged this one before the court for performances. All kinds of performances. Some of them hurt, and some of them didn't, though she still cried out prettily enough. She smiled, her tone polite and conversational. Do you remember the night he made you dance for me in the red shoes, Lily? Lily's green eyes settled on Maeve, calm and placid as a forest pool. Maeve's smile sharpened. Do you remember what I did to you after? Lily smiled a tired little expression, and shook her head. 
I'm sorry, Maeve. I know how much pleasure you take in gloating, but you can't hurt me with that now. That lily is no more. Maeve narrowed her eyes, and then her gaze shifted to fix. And this one. I've seen this little man weeping like a child, begging for mercy. Fix sipped at his lemonade and said, For the love of God, Maeve, would you give the evil kinkstress act a rest? It gets tired pretty fast. The winter lady let out an exasperated breath, put down her drink, and folded her arms sullenly across her chest. Very well, Maeve said, her tone petulant. What is it you wish to know, wizard? I'd like to know why Mab hasn't been striking back at the Red Court after they trespassed on Shi territory during the battle last year. Maeve arched a brow at me. That is knowledge, and therefore power. What are you prepared to trade for it? Forgetfulness, I said. Maeve tilted her head. I can think of nothing in particular I would like to forget. I can think of something you want me to forget, Maeve. Can you? I smiled with teeth. I'd be willing to forget what you did at Billy and George's wedding. Pardon? Maeve said. I don't seem to recall being present. She knew the score. She knew that I knew it too. Her legality pissed me off. Of course, I replied. You weren't there, but your handmaiden was. Jenny Greenteeth. Maeve's lips parted in sudden surprise. I saw through her glamour. Didn't you know who showed her down? I asked her, lifting my own eyebrows in faux innocence. That was petty cruelty, Maeve, even for you, trying to ruin their marriage. Your wolf children did me a petty wrong, Maeve replied. They killed a favorite hireling of the winter court. They owed their loyalty to Dresden when they killed the tigress, Lily murmured, even as did the little folk he used against Aurora. They acted with his consent and upon his will, Maeve. You know our laws. Maeve gave Lily a dirty look that was almost human. For what happened that night, they were mine. I put my hands flat on the table and leaned a little toward Maeve speaking with as much quiet intensity as I could. I protect what is mine. You should know that by now. I have lawful reason for a quarrel with you. Maeve's attention moved back to me, and her expression became remote and alien. What is it you propose? I'm willing to let things go as they are, all accounts settled, in exchange for an honest answer to my question. I settled back in my chair and asked, Why hasn't Winter moved against the Red Court? Maeve regarded me with an odd little twinkle in her eye, then nodded and said, Mab has not allowed it. Fix and Lily traded a quick look of surprise. Sooth, Maeve said, nodding, evidently enjoying their reaction. The Queen has readied her forces to strike at summer and has furthermore given specific orders preventing her captains from conducting operations against the Red Court. That's madness, Lily said quietly. 
Maeve folded her hands on the table, frowning at something far away, and said, It may well be. Dark things stir in Winter's heart. Things even I have never before seen. Dangerous things. I believe they are a portent. I tilted my head a little, focused on her. How so? What Aurora attempted was insane. Even among the she, Maeve replied. Her actions could have thrown enormous forces out of balance to the ruin of all. Her heart was in the right place, Fix said, his tone mildly defensive. Maybe, I told him as gently as I could. But good intent doesn't amount to much when the consequences are epically screwed up. Maeve shook her head. Hearts. Good. Evil. Mortals are always concerned with such nonsense. She abruptly rose, her mind clearly elsewhere. Something in her expression or manner gave me a sudden sense that she was worried. Deeply, truly worried. Little Miss Overlord was frightened. These mortal notions, Maeve said. Good, evil, love. All those other things your kind natter on about. Are they perhaps contagious? I rose with her politely. Some would say so, I told her. She grimaced. In the time since her death, I have often thought to myself that Aurora was stricken with some mortal madness. I believe the queen of air and darkness has been taken by a similar contagion. She suddenly shuddered and said, voice curt, I have answered you with truth, and more than needed be said. Does that satisfy the accounting, mortal? Aye, I told her, nodding. Good enough for me. Then I take my leave. She turned, took half a step, and there was a sudden gust of frozen air that knocked her mostly full glass of lemonade onto the floor. It froze in a lumpy puddle. Somewhere between tabletop and floor, Maeve vanished. The three of us sat there quietly for a moment. She was lying, Fix said. She can't lie, Lily and I said at exactly the same moment. Lily yielded the issue to me with a gesture of her hand, and I told Fix, She can't speak an outright lie, Fix. None of the she can. You know that. He frowned and made a frustrated, helpless little gesture with his hand. But, Mab? Insane? It does fit with our concerns, Lily told him quietly. Fix looked a little green around the edges. I loved her like a sister, but Aurora's madness was bad enough. If Mab sets out to send the world on a downward spiral, I mean... I can't even imagine the kind of thing she could do. I can, I said quietly. I would suggest that you relay word of this to Titania, lady, and take that as official concern from the council. Please also convey the message that the council is naturally interested in preserving the balance in Ferry. It would be of value to all of us to cooperate in order to learn more. Lily nodded once at me. Indeed, I will do so. She shivered and closed her eyes for a second, her expression distressed. Harry, I'm very sorry, but the bindings on me... 
I stretch the bounds of my proper place. Fix nodded decisively and rose. He took Lily's arm. I wish we could have done more to help you. Don't worry about it, I said, rising politely to my feet again. You did what you could. I appreciate it. Lily gave me a strained smile. She and Fix departed quick and quiet. The door never opened, but a breath later they were both gone. Mouse sat there next to the table, cocking his head left and right, his ears attentively forward, as though trying to figure that one out. I sat at the table and sipped lemonade without much enthusiasm. More trouble in fairy. Bigger trouble in fairy. And I'd be willing to bet dollars to naval lint that I knew exactly which stupid son of a bitch the council would expect to start poking his nose around in it. I put the lemonade down. It suddenly tasted very sour. Mac arrived. He took my lemonade. He replaced it with a beer. I flicked the top off with my thumb and put it away in a long pull. It was warm and it tasted too bitter, but the gentle bite of the alcohol in it was pleasant enough to make me want another. Mac showed up with another. Mac can sometimes be downright angelic. They've changed, I told him. Fix and Lily. It's like they aren't even the same people anymore. Mac grunted once, and then he said, They grew up. Maybe that's it. I fell back into a brooding silence, and Mac left me to it. I finished the second beer more slowly, but I didn't have a lot of time to lose. I nodded my thanks to Mac, left money on the table, and took up Mouse's leash. We headed for the door. I had other business to take care of. Nebulous maybe threats would have to wait for the monsters I was sure would show up in a few hours. At least I'd gotten out of the whole situation without someone trying to kill me or declaring war on the council. I'd had a civil conversation with both Lady Winter and Lady Summer and come away from it unscathed. As I walked toward the door, though, an idle thought gnawed at me. It had hardly been like pulling out teeth at all. Chapter 21 I headed back for SplatterCon before the afternoon was half gone, this time with my backpack of wizard toys, my staff, my blasting rod, my dog, my gun, and a partridge in a pear tree. I didn't have a concealed carry permit for the 44, but working on the theory that it was better to have the gun and not need it than to need it and not have it, I put it in the backpack. When I got to SplatterCon, I decided it very well might have been better not to have the damn gun on me. There was something of a police presence in evidence. Two patrol cars were parked in plain sight outside the hotel, and one cop in uniform stood, sweating and miserable-looking, outside the doors. As I paid off the cabbie, I picked out at least two loiterers in street clothes who were paying too much attention to who and what approached the building to be casual strollers, taking advantage of spots of shade outside the hotel. I clipped on my SplatterCon name tag. The cop's eyes flicked over me, and I could all but see him take stock of me. Tall guy, gaunt, must hair, dark eyes, big dog, sticks, backpack, one hand in a leather glove, and a horror convention name tag. Evidently, in this guy's head, a name tag gave you carte blanche to look weird without being threatening, because when his eyes got to that, 
He just traded a nod with me and waved me through. Inside, not only was the convention in full swing, but they had added a press conference to it to boot. The conference wing outside the room where the killer struck was packed with a half-circle of reporters and photographers, while industrious satellite personnel held up lights and even a couple of boom microphones. From the door, I could see three more uniformed officers. Between the cops, the conference, and the passers-by, that whole section of the hotel was packed with a lot of noisy people. The air conditioning had been pushed well beyond its limits, and it was stuffy and smelled like most crowded buildings. Mouse sneezed and looked mournful. I agreed with him. Murphy appeared out of the crowd and made her way to me. She gave me a tight nod and knelt down to speak to Mouse and scratch behind his ears. How'd your meeting go? she asked. Survived it. Storm clouds on the horizon. I looked around the place a minute more and said, For crying out loud, it's a zoo. It gets better, Murphy said. I've been speaking with the convention staff, and they say that since the story hit the news and the radio stations at noon, they've almost doubled the number of attendees. Crap, I sighed. There's more. Green called in the feds, she said. I frowned. Last time the feds showed up was less than fun. Tell me about it, she hesitated and then said, Rick is with them. I blinked at her for a second and then remembered. Oh, right, the ex. Ex-husband, Murphy said, her tone sour. Her back was rigidly straight and her eyes flickered with stormy emotions. Current brother-in-law. Which is icky, I said. And I don't like him being here, Murphy said, but it isn't my call. And it's possible that I have issues. I snorted. She gave me a brief smile. This has been splashy enough that they've got one of the major forensics units from the East Coast on the way. I scowled. Maybe he should have blown a few trumpets, too. Or brought in a marching band. I think if he hurries, he can probably rent some of those big swiveling spotlights before dark. She rolled her eyes. I get the point, Harry. You don't like all the noise. I don't like all the potential victims, I said. Fifty bucks says the extra attendees are mostly minors. No bet, she replied. Does it matter? Maybe. In general, young people, especially adolescents, feel emotions much more intensely, the whole hormone thing. It can make them easier targets, richer sources of energy. Then why did it hit an old geezer like Pell first? I opened my mouth and then closed it again. Good point. Besides, she continued, isn't it a good thing if more people are paying attention? From what you've told me, things from the spooky side of the street don't like crowds. In general, no, I said. But the place wasn't exactly a ghost town yesterday when the phobophage showed up. You think it will appear right in front of all these people, she asked? I think crowds aren't going to deter it. I think that if something bad happens, the more people there are around, the more fear it's going to generate, and the more our killer gets to eat. And a panic with more people means even more people get hurt. Murphy's pale golden brows knitted into a frown. So what options can you give me? There's no guarantee, but I think we'll have until nightfall. Why? Because it'll be stronger after dark. Murphy frowned. You think that's why Pell survived this attack, she murmured. It was still daylight. 
Got it in one, I said. Assuming we have until sundown, it gives us a little time to work. Doing what? Setting up some wards, I said. Like at your place? I shook my head. Nothing that complex. There's no time. I can't build a moat around this place, but I think I can throw together a web that'll let us know when and where something comes over from the never-never. I'll need to walk around a lot of the building to cover it all. She nodded. That doesn't address the crowd issue, I grimaced. You know anyone in the fire department? A cousin, she said. This place must be over maximum occupancy. Maybe if the fire marshal heard about how crowded it was, they'd clear at least some of these people out. We only need a crowd big enough to tempt the killer in. She nodded. I'll see to it. And I know it's a long shot, but has CPD turned up anything? Or the ME? Nothing on the autopsy. They didn't give this one to Butters. Brioche handled it, and he didn't find anything out of the ordinary. Naturally, I sighed. Green? Theories. He had some vague notion that the attack might have been some kind of publicity stunt to attract attention to the convention. That's a little cynical, I said. Green isn't a believer, Murphy said. And he's a trained investigator looking for a solid motive. If he accepts that the killer was just some kind of lunatic, it means he's got almost nothing to work with. So he's grasping at straws and hoping he can find something familiar he can use to nail the killer fast. I grunted. Guess I can see that. I don't envy him, Murphy said. I don't like him much, but he's a cop and he's in a tight spot. Chances are there's not a damn thing he could do about it. And he doesn't even know it. There was a little extra weight on the last phrase. Something that contained personal pain. Murphy had faced the same situations as Green, more or less. Something wild happened, and none of it made any sense. Murphy had her first face-off with the supernatural while she was still a beat cop on patrol. It gave her an advantage as a detective, because at least she knew how much she didn't know. Green didn't even have that much going for him. I hated to see her like that, feeling helpless to do anything, hurting even if only in memory. How about you? I asked. You see anything that you think is worth mentioning? Not yet. Someone around here has got to know something useful, even if they don't know that they do. She tilted her head and frowned at me. Wait, you're asking me? I shrugged a shoulder. Murph, you've seen as much weird as most wizards. I think you're more capable than you know. She studied my face for a long moment. What do you mean? I shrugged again. I mean that you've been there a time or two. You know what it's like when something is lurking around. There's commonality to it. You'll know it when you feel it. What, am I supposed to be a wizard now? I grinned. Just a savvy cop chick, Murph. Cop chick? She asked, menace in her voice. Sorry, I said. Police chick. She grunted. That's better. Just don't ignore your instincts, I said. They're there for a reason. Murphy wasn't listening to that last part because she'd turned her head sharply to one side, blue eyes narrowing, as she focused on a man who had emerged from a conference room doorway and was slipping down the hall. And Mouse let out a low growl. Who's that? I asked Murphy. Darby Crane, Murphy said. Ah, I said, the horror movie director. 
Mouse growled again. Murphy and he started after Crane. Why fight the inevitable? I started walking before Mouse pulled my arms out of their sockets. Hey, how's about we go talk to him? You think? Murphy said. Take him. I'll back you up. She nodded without turning around. Excuse me, she told a gang of convention goers in front of her. Coming through, please. We tried to hurry through the crowd, but it was like trying to run in chest-deep water. The faster you try to move, the more resistance there is. Crane moved through them like an eel, a spare man of medium height in slacks and a dark blazer. Murphy forged ahead, making room for me to follow, while I put my height to good use to keep an eye on Crane. He beat us to a comparatively empty side hallway that led back to ground-floor guest rooms and elevators. By the time we got into the clear, the elevator doors had opened. Murphy hurried forward and shot a glance over her shoulder at me, then jerked her chin at the elevators. I grinned. There are times when I hate it that technology has such problems operating around wizards. And then there are the times when it's sort of fun. I made a mild effort of will focused my thoughts on the elevators, and murmured, Hexus. Nebulous and unseen energy fluttered down the hallway, and when the hex hit the elevators, there was a sudden hiss of sparks at one edge of the panel with the call button, and an oozing smoke dribbled out a moment later. The doors started to close, then a bell went, Bing! The doors sprang open again. That happened a couple of more times before Murphy closed to the elevator and caught up to Darby Crane. I slowed my pace, holding on to Mouse, and lurked several feet away, trying to blend in by reading a wall full of flyers announcing various parties at the convention. Crane was a surprisingly good-looking man, slender, stark cheekbones, and his demeanor was more like an actor's than that of someone on the production side. His dark hair was in a short, neat cut, dark eyes deep-set and opaque, and he carried himself in a posture that read nothing but relaxed non-aggression. Before I'd finished looking him over, I was sure that the whole thing was a calculated lie. There was cruelty lurking below the calm of his features, contempt hiding within the modest posture of his body. As Murphy approached, he stepped out of the elevator, frowning at the smoke. His eyes snapped to her and around the hallway at once. There were several other people standing not far away, outside of a guest room with an open door. He judged them, then Murphy for a moment, and then turned to face her, his mouth settling into a polite, bland little perjury of a smile. So hard to rely on technology these days, he said his glance moving over me as part of the background scenery, I thought. He had a surprisingly deep, resonant voice. May I help you, officer? Lieutenant, actually, he told him without rancor. My name is Karen Murphy. I'm with Chicago Police Department Special Investigations, Crane said. I know. Alarm bells went off in my head. I doubted Crane would recognize it, but Murphy's stance shifted subtly becoming more wary. Have we met, Mr. Crane? In a way. I've seen second-hand copies of the film of you gunning down a madman and some sort of animal several years ago. Very impressive, Lieutenant. Have you ever considered work in film? She shook her head. 
I've been told the camera adds ten pounds. I have problems enough. May I take a few moments of your time, Mr. Crane? He grinned at her then. A grin I'm sure he meant to be boyish and flirty. The weasel. I suppose that depends on what you intend to do with them. Murphy studied his face for just a moment, as though in wary amusement. I had a few questions regarding the incident here, and I hope that you can help me out with them. I can't imagine what I know that would help you, Crane replied. He glanced at the unmoving elevator doors and sighed. Bother. He drew a small black cell phone from his jacket pocket, hit a button without looking, and lifted it to his ear. Then he lowered it again and frowned down at it in silence. Ha! Take that, weasel. It won't take much of your time, Murphy said. I'm sure that you can see how important it is for us to be thorough in this investigation. We would all hate for anyone else to be harmed. I'm sure I don't know anything of any importance, Lieutenant, Crane said, his voice turning a little impatient. I was present during the blackout last night, but I was already in my room. I didn't even come downstairs until this morning. I see. Did anyone see you at that time? Crane let out a little laugh. <laughs> Am I a suspect that I need an alibi? As a celebrity guest, it's entirely possible that the person or persons responsible for this attack might have an unhealthy interest in you, Murphy replied, matching his fake laugh with her politely professional smile. I certainly don't mean to imply any sort of accusation, only concern for your safety. Someone shoved open a door that showed a set of stairs behind it, and a small man in an expensive gray suit emerged from it. He was sort of frog-faced. He had the mouth of someone much larger than he, almost grotesquely thick and wide. He had fine black hair, all limp and stringy, and someone had cut it with the ancient but trusty salad bowl method. He had bulgy, watery eyes that required extra-large, wide-rimmed glasses to properly encircle. Ah, Mr. Crane, the newcomer said. He had a wheezy, nasal voice. I received your call, but it was apparently cut off just as I answered. Crane took out his phone again and tossed it underhand to the newcomer. It seems to have died rather abruptly, Lucius, like this elevator. The man caught it and frowned at the phone, then at Murphy with equal amounts of disapproval. I see. Lieutenant Murphy, may I present Lucius Glau? my personal advisor and legal counsel. Mouse tensed as Glau turned to regard Murphy with his froggy eyes. The little lawyer made a swallowing sound in his throat and then said, Is my client under arrest? No, she said. Naturally, then I must insist that this conversation be cut short, Glau said over her. For a pasty little guy, he had a lot of confidence. He squared off in front of Murphy, just to one side of Crane. Murphy's arms relaxed to her sides, and I saw her blue eyes flick down to the floor and back up, gauging distances. The tension level went higher. We were just talking, Murphy told Glau. I'd seen her wearing that look, right before she went for her gun, more than once, in an amiable and cooperative fashion. 
As I informed both the FBI and the investigator in charge of the scene with Chicago's police department, my client was in his rooms all night and neither witnessed what happened nor even knew of what had transpired until he came down to breakfast this morning. Glau's voice was clipped, his bulgy eyes impossible to read. I got the feeling it was the expression he used whenever he did anything, be it eating ice cream or drowning puppies. Continued contact could well be construed as harassment. Lucius, Lucius, Crane said, holding out his hand between them, his voice soothing. Honestly, you react so strongly to the smallest things. He turned that dazzling smile on Murphy and said, I'm sorry. Lucius has worked for me for a very long time, and he's seen a number of unreasonable people approach me. I certainly don't think of the attentions of so striking a woman as harassment. Murphy's eyes left Glau for a second as she cocked a golden brow at Crane. Really? Truly, Crane said, the model of modern gallantry. Lucius is doubtless concerned about my timetable for today and I would hate to disappoint any of the fans here to meet me by falling behind my schedule. He glanced at Froggy as he spoke, and Froggy took a very small step back from Murphy. Crane nodded at him, continuing to speak. But, if you would permit it, perhaps you would care to let me get you a drink of something later this evening, by way of apology. Murphy hesitated, which wasn't much like her. I don't know she said. Crane extended his hand to her to be shaken, still smiling. If you still had questions, I'd be happy to answer them then. Please, as a token of my intentions, I insist. I would hate you to have the wrong impression of me. Murphy gave him a look of wary amusement and lifted her hand. I'm not sure how I got across that much carpet that fast, but I put my hand on Murphy's shoulder and gripped lightly just before she touched him. She froze, sensing the warning in the gesture, and drew her hand back. Crane's eyes narrowed, studying me, and still sticking out. And who is this? Harry Dresden, I said. Crane went still. Not still like people go still, where you can see them blinking and swaying slightly and adjusting their balance. He went still like corpses and plastic dressing dummies, and said nothing. As I am a highly experienced investigator, I drew the conclusion that he recognized the name. Froggy made a gulping sound in his throat, bulging eyes switching to me. I thought he shrunk in on himself a little, as if suddenly losing an inch or two of height, or tensing to crouch. He recognized it too. I felt famous. Mouse let out a relaxed ripsaw of a growl so low that it could hardly be heard. Froggy's eyes went to the dog and widened. He shot a look at Crane. Everyone froze like that for a moment. Crane and Murphy still smiled their professional smiles. Froggy looked frog-like. I went for board. But I felt my heart speed up as my instincts told me that violence was a hell of a lot closer to the surface than it looked. There are witnesses here, Dresden, Crane said. You can't move on me, 
it would be seen. I tilted my head and pursed my lips thoughtfully. You're right. And you're a public figure, which means this is a great opportunity for advertising. I haven't been on TV since the last time I was on the Larry Fowler show. His expression changed then, that cold sneer coming out of the background to twist his lips. You wouldn't dare reveal yourself to the world. I snorted at him and said, Go read the yellow pages in your room. I'm in there, under wizards. Froggy gulped again. You're insane, Crane said. Wizards is the quaziest people, I confirmed, and you don't look very much like a Darby. Crane's chin lifted, his eyes glittering with some sort of sudden approval. I had no idea why. Damn it, I hate it when someone knows more than me about exactly how deep a hole I'm digging under myself. No? And what does a Darby look like? I confess the only one I ever saw was in that leprechaun movie with Sean Connery, I said. Call it an instinct. He pursed his lips and fell silent. We all enjoyed another two minutes of wordless, increasingly tense standoff. Then Murphy said, deadpan, Say ten o'clock for that drink, Darby? The hotel's lounge? We'd hate to keep you from your busy schedule. He glanced from Murphy to me and back and then lowered his hand. He gave her a little bow of the head, then turned and walked away, back toward the crowd. Froggy watched us for a three-count, then turned and hurried after his boss, checking frequently over his shoulder. I exhaled slowly and leaned against the wall. Adrenaline without an outlet is a funny thing. The long muscles in my legs twitched and flexed without me telling them to and the lights in the hallway suddenly seemed a little too bright. My bruised head twinged some more. Murphy just stood there, not moving, but I could hear her consciously regulating her breathing, keeping it smooth. Mouse sat down and looked bored, but his ears kept twitching in the direction the pair had vanished. Well, Murphy said a second later, keeping her voice low, what was that all about? We almost started a fight, I said. I noticed that, Murphy said, her tone patient. But why? He's spooky, I murmured. She frowned, looking over her shoulder and up at me. What is he? I told you, spooky, I shook my head. Other than that, I don't know. She blinked. What do you mean, you don't know? I don't know, I said. Something about him hit me wrong. When he offered you his hand, it seemed off, dangerous. Murphy shook her head. I figured he was going to go for the hold and caress routine, she said. It's a little bit insulting, but it isn't all that dangerous. Unless maybe it is, I said. You're sure he's from your side of things, she asked. Yeah, he recognized me. He started pulling out the standard old world reasons for avoiding public confrontation, and Mouse didn't like him, or his lawyer, either. Vampire? she asked. Could be, I said, chewing on my lip. Could be a lot of things. Hell, could be human, for that matter. Without knowing more, we shouldn't make any assumptions. Think he's involved in the attacks? I like him for it, I said. If I was making the call alone, he'd definitely be our asshole. He's got all the earmarks.
If he's the guy, he's out of my reach, she said. He's got a hair-trigger attorney and has already spoken to Green and Rick. Any police pressure I brought against him would be harassment. Green won't act on my suspicions. Well, I said, good thing I'm not Green. Chapter 22 Murphy and I walked around the hotel, and as we did, I popped open a fresh can of blue Play-Doh. At the corners of major intersections and at the exterior exits, I pinched off bits and plunked them down on top of the molding over doorways, inside flower pots, inside fire extinguisher cabinets, and anywhere else where they wouldn't be easily or immediately noticed. I made sure to leave plenty of them in unnoticed little spots along the hallways chiefly in use for the convention, especially outside the rooms that the schedule designated as showing films as evening approached. What are we doing again? Murphy asked. Setting up a spell, I said. With Play-Doh? Yes. She gave me a level look. I shook out the can that still had most of the original material in it and showed it to her. The little pieces I've been leaving around are part of this piece, see? Not yet, she said. They used to be one piece. Even when they're separated, they still have the thaumaturgical connection to the original, I told her. It means that I'll be able to use the big piece to reach out and connect to the little pieces. That's what you meant by a web? Yes, I'll be able to... I twisted up my face, searching for the words to explain... I can extend energy out to all the smaller pieces. I'll set it up so that if one of the little pieces picks up on a disturbance of the energies, I'll be able to feel it through the larger piece. Like seismographs, sort of, Murphy said. Yeah, I said. And we use blue Play-Doh, blue for defense. She arched a brow at me. Does the color really matter? Yes, I said, then thought about it for a second. Well, probably no, but yes for me. Huh? A lot of the use of magic is all tied up with your emotions, with what you believe is real. When I was younger, I learned a lot of stuff, like the role of colors in the casting of spell. Green for fertility and prosperity, red for passion and energy, white for purity, black for vengeance, and so on. It could be that the color doesn't matter at all, but if I expect the spell to work because of the color used, then that color is important. If I don't believe in it, the spell won't ever get off the ground. Like Dumbo's magic feather? Murphy asked. It was his confidence that was really important? Yes, I said. The feather was just a symbol, but it was an important symbol. I gestured with a can, so I used blue because I don't have to do too much introspection, and I don't introduce new doubts in a crisis situation, and because it was cheap at Walmart. Murphy laughed. Walmart, huh? Wizarding doesn't pay much, I said. You'd be surprised how much stuff I get from Walmart. I checked a clock on the wall. We've got about two hours before the first movie starts showing. She nodded. What do you need? A quiet space to work in, I told her. At least six or seven feet across. The more private and secure, the better. I've got to assume that the bad guy knows I'm around here somewhere. I don't want to get a machete in the back when I'm busy running the spell. How long do you need to set it up? I shrugged. Twenty minutes, give or take. 
What I'm really concerned about is... Mr. Dresden, called a voice from across the crowded convention hallway. I looked up to see Sandra Marling hurrying through the crowd toward me. The convention's chairwoman looked exhausted and too nervous to be awake, much less standing, much less politely pushing her way through a crowd, but she did it anyway. She still wore the same black T-shirt with the red splatter con logo on it, presumably the same I'd seen her in the night before. Ms. Marling, I said, nodding to her as she approached. Good afternoon. She shook her head wearily. I'm such a... This is such an enormous amount of... But I don't know who else I can turn to about this. Her words failed her, and she started trembling with nerves and weariness. I traded a frown with Murphy. Sandra, what's wrong? It's Molly, she said. I frowned. What about her? She came here from the hospital a couple of hours ago. The police came to talk to her, and I don't think she's come out since then. And none of the officers I've spoken to know where she is. I think... Sandra, I told her, take a breath. Slow down. Do you know where Molly is? The woman closed her eyes and shook her head, bringing herself under control, lowering her voice several pitches. They're still... interrogating her, I think. Isn't that what they say? When they try to scare you and... Ask you questions? I narrowed my eyes. Yeah, I said. Was she arrested? Sandra shook her head jerkily. I don't think so. They didn't handcuff her or read from that little card or anything. Can they do that? Just drag her into a room? We'll see, I said. Which room? Other wing. Second door on the right, she said. I nodded slung my pack off my back, and took out a small notebook. I scribbled some phone numbers and names on a page and gave it to Sandra. Call both of these people. She blinked at the paper. What do I tell them? The truth. Tell them what's going on, and that Harry Dresden said they need to get down here immediately. Sandra blinked down at the page. What are you going to do? Oh, you know, the usual, I said. Get to that phone. I'll catch up in a minute, Murphy said. I nodded, slung the pack back on, jerked my head at Mouse, and started walking with purposeful strides toward the knot of reporters that had begun to dissolve at the conclusion of the official statements to the press. My dog fell into pace at my side until I spotted Lydia Stern at the rear of the crowd. Lydia Stern was a formidable woman, a reporter for the Midwestern Arcane, a yellow journal based out of Chicago that did its best to report on the supernatural. Sometimes they managed to get close to the truth, but more often they ran stories that had headlines like Lizard Baby Born in Trailer Park, or maybe Bigfoot in the Chupacabra, the Unholy Alliance. By and large, the stories were amusing and fairly harmless, but once in a while someone stumbled into something strange and it made it into the paper. Susan Rodriguez had been a lead reporter for the Arcane until she'd run into exactly the wrong story. Now she lived her life somewhere in South America, fighting off the infection in her soul that wanted to turn her into one of the Red Court, while she and her half-vampire buddies campaigned against their would-be recruiters. When Lydia Stern took over Susan's old job a couple of years back, her reporting had taken a different angle. She'd investigated strange events, 
and then demanded to know why the appropriate institutions had been ignoring them. The woman had a scathing intellect and penetrating wit, and she employed both liberally and with considerable panache in her writing. She was unafraid to challenge anyone in her articles, from some small-town animal control unit to the FBI. It was a shame she was working at a rag like the Arcane, instead of a reputable paper in D.C. or New York. She'd have been a Pulitzer nominee inside of five years. City officials who had to deal with the cases I'd brushed up against had developed a nearly supernatural ability to vanish whenever she was around. None of them wanted to be the next person Lydia Stern eviscerated in print. She had a growing reputation as an investigative terror. Ms. Stern, I said in a low, grave voice, extra emphasis on the Z in Ms. I wonder if you might have a few moments. The terror of the Midwest arcane whirled to face me, and her face broke into a cherubic grin. She was a little over five feet tall, pleasantly plump, and of Asian ancestry. She had a sparkling smile, thick glasses, curly black hair, and was wearing a pair of denim overalls over an old Queensryche t-shirt. Her tennis shoes had bright pink laces on them. Harry Dresden, she said. She had a sort of breathless, bubbling voice, the kind that seemed like it could barely contain laughter beneath almost every word. Ha! I knew this one smelled right. Could be, I said. I hadn't been real forthcoming with Lydia. It hadn't worked out well with reporters in the past. Whenever I spoke to her, little daggers of guilt stabbed at me. Reminders that I could not afford to let careless words get her into too much trouble. Despite that, we'd gotten along, and I'd never lied to her. I hadn't bothered to try. You busy? She gestured at the bag, whose strap hung over her shoulder. I've got recordings, and I'll want to jot down some notes shortly. She tilted her head to one side. Why do you ask? I need a thug to scare some guys for me, I said. The dimples in her cheeks deepened. Oh? Yeah, I said. Do this for me, I'll give you ten minutes on this. I waved my hand vaguely at the hotel around us. As soon as I had some time free. Her eyes brightened. Done, she said. What do I do? Hang around outside a doorway, and I grinned. Just be yourself. Good, I can do that. She nodded once, curls bouncing, and followed me to the room where they were grilling my friend's daughter. I opened the door, like I owned the place, and walked in. The room wasn't a big one, maybe the size of a large elementary school classroom. There was a raised platform about a foot high at one end, with chairs on it behind a long table. More chairs faced it in rows. A sign, now discarded on the floor behind the door, declared that the room was scheduled for something called filking between noon and five o'clock today. Filking sounded suspiciously like it might be an activity somehow related to spawning salmon or maybe some kind of bizarre mammalian discussion. I decided it was probably one of those things I was happier not knowing. Green was in the room, standing on the platform with his arms folded, a sour frown on his face. Molly sat in the first row of chairs, still in the same clothes as the night before. She looked tired. She'd been crying. Next to her was a man of medium build and unremarkable height, 
with brown hair just tousled enough to be fashionable. He wore a gray suit, its gravity somewhat offset by a black tie that featured Marvin the Martian. I recognized him. Rick, Murphy's ex. He stood over Molly, passing her a cup of water, the good cop of the usual interrogation equation. He was here in his official capacity then. Agent Rick. Excuse me, Green said, without looking over at me. This room isn't open to the public. It isn't? I said, overly ingenuous. Man, I was really looking forward to a nice afternoon of filking, too. Molly looked up, and her eyes widened in recognition and what looked like sudden hope. Harry! Hey, you kid, I told her and ambled in. Mouse in tow. The dog went right over to Molly, wagging his tail and subtly begging for affection by thrusting his broad muzzle underneath her folded hands. Molly let out a little laugh and leaned down, hugging the dog, talking baby talk to him like she did to her youngest siblings. Green turned to glower at me. After a moment, Agent Rick did too. Dresden, Green said, his tone peremptory. You are interfering in an investigation. Get out. I ignored him to speak to Molly. How's Rosie? She left her cheek on top of Mouse's broad head and said, Unconscious. She was very upset by the news, and the doctors gave her something to help her sleep. They were afraid she'd freak out and it would hurt the baby. Dresden, Green snarled. Best thing for her right now, I told Molly. She'll handle it better when she's had some rest. She nodded and said, I hope so. Green spat a curse and reached for his radio, presumably to summon goons. Green was an ass. Maybe I was going a little hex-happy, but I muttered something under my breath and made a little effort. Sparks shot out of the radio and were followed by curls of smoke. Green stood there cursing as he tried to get the thing to work. Damn it, Dresden, he snarled. Get out before I have you taken downtown. I kept ignoring him. Hi there, Rick. How was the wedding? That's it, Green said. Rick pursed his lips and then held up a hand toward Green, a placating gesture. Everyone survived it, Agent Rick responded, studying me with a steady frown, looking between me and Molly. Harry, we're working here. You should go. Yeah, I asked. I plopped down into the chair beside Molly and grinned at him. I'm thinking maybe not. I mean, I'm working too. I'm a consultant. You're obstructing an investigation, Dresden, Green growled. You're going to lose your jobs with the city, your investigative license. Hell, I'll even get you stuck in jail for a month or two. No, you won't. Have it your way, tough guy, Green said, and started for the door. Molly, maybe taking it for a cue, rose herself. Sit down, Green said, his voice hard. You aren't finished yet. She hesitated for a second, and then sat. Green, 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 I said. There's something you're missing here. He paused. Agent Rick watched me steadily. See, Miss Carpenter here can go any time she damn well pleases. Not until she's answered a few questions, he said. I made a game show buzzing sound. <coughs> Wrong. This is a free country. She can walk out and there's not a damn thing you can do about it, unless you want to arrest her. 
I grinned at him some more. You didn't arrest her, did you? Molly watched the exchange from the corner of her vision, being very still and keeping her face down. We're questioning her in relation to an ongoing investigation, Rick said. Yeah? One of you guys got the subpoena then? They hadn't, of course. No one spoke. See, you're the one out on a limb here, Green. You've got nothing on the young lady. No court order. You haven't arrested her. So anything she chooses to tell you is entirely voluntary. Molly blinked up at me. It is? I put a hand to my chest and mimed an expression of shock. Green, I can hardly believe this. Did you lie to this young woman to frighten her? To make her think she was under arrest? I didn't lie, Green snarled. You just led her on, I said. Sure, sure, not your fault if she interpreted you wrong. Say, let's go back and check the tape and see where the mistake was. I paused. You are recording this, aren't you? All on the record and above board? Green looked at me like he wanted to kick my nuts up into my skull. You've got nothing but speculation. Get out. Or, as lead investigator, I will have you barred from the hotel. That a threat? I asked him. Believe it. I made a show of rubbing at my mouth. Oh, man. I'm having quite the moral quandary. Because if you do that to me, then hell. Maybe the press would find out that you're dismissing professional consultants with a positive track record with the city. I leaned forward and added casually, Oh, man, they might find out that you're illegally interrogating a juvenile. Green stared at me, shock on his face. Even Agent Rick arched an eyebrow. What? A juvenile. A juvenile, I enunciated. I.E., one who cannot give you legal consent on her own. I took the liberty of sending for her parents. I'm sure that they and their attorney will have a whole lot of questions for you. That's blackmail, Green said. No, it's due process, I replied. You're the one who tried the end run around the law. Green scowled at me and said, You can talk all you want, but you got no proof. My cheeks ached from smiling so much, and I chuckled. The door, which had never fully closed, opened on cue. Lydia Stern stood there behind it, her press badge around her neck, a mini-tape recorder in her hand, held up so that Green could clearly see it. So, detective, she asked, could you please explain why, as a part of your investigation, you are interrogating a juvenile without her parents' consent? Is she a suspect in the crime? Or a witness to any of the events? And what about those rumors of interdepartmental non-cooperation slowing down the investigation? Green stared at the reporter. He shot a glance at Agent Rick. Rick shrugged. He's got you. You took a chance. It didn't pay off. Green spat a word that authority figures oughtn't say in front of juveniles, and then stomped out. Lydia Stern winked at me, then followed on his heels, recorder held out toward him, asking a steady stream of questions whose only reasonable answers would make Green look like an idiot. Rick watched him go and shook his head. Then he said to me, What's your stake in this? The girl's my friend's daughter, I said, just looking out for her. 
He gave me a slight nod. I see. Green's under a lot of pressure. I'm sorry you got treated like that. Rick, I said in a patient voice. I'm not a teenage girl. Please don't try to good cop me. His polite, interested expression vanished for a second behind a quick, boyish grin. Then he shrugged and said, It was worth trying. I snorted. You know he can get the subpoena. It's just a question of running through channels. I rose. That's not my problem. I'll leave it to the carpenter's attorney. I see, he said. You actually are interfering with the investigation. He could probably make it stick. Come on, agent. I'm protecting the rights of a juvenile. The ACLU would eat that raw. I shook my head. Besides, what you're doing is wrong. Bullying girls? Hell's bells, man. That's low. A flicker of anger touched Agent Rick's expression. Dresden, I know you don't have a concealed carry permit. You want me to suspect you of carrying a weapon and search you for it? Oops. I thought nervously of the revolver in my backpack. If Agent Rick wanted to make an issue of it, I could be in trouble. But I didn't want him to know that. I tried to shake it off with a nonchalant shrug. How's that going to help stop the killer before he strikes again? Rick tilted his head to one side and frowned at me. Damn it, I've got to get a better poker face. He oriented on me, eyes searching over me for possible places to hide a gun. Irrelevant, he replied. If you're breaking the law, you're breaking the law. From the doorway there was an impatient sigh, and then Murphy said, Would it kill you to stop being an asshole for five minutes, Rick? I hadn't noticed her arrival, and judging from Agent Rick's expression, neither had he. He's a consultant for SI, which is also working the case. We don't have the time to get involved in a pissing contest. People are in danger. We need to work together. Rick glared at her, then reined in his temper and shrugged a shoulder. You may be right, but Dresden, I want you to consider leaving of your own will. If you keep interfering, I'll arrest you and toss you in the clink for 24 hours. No, Murphy said, entering the room. You won't. He rounded on her, eyes narrowed. Damn it, Karen. You never know when to quit, do you? Of course I do, she said, setting her jaw. Never. Agent Rick shook his head. He slammed open the door and departed. Murphy watched him go. Then she sighed and asked, Are you all right, miss? Molly nodded somewhat numbly. Yes, just tired. A moment later, Sandra Marling hurried in, looked around at all of us, and then went over to give Molly a hug. The girl hugged back, tight. Did you reach them? I asked Sandra. Yes, Mrs. Carpenter's on the way. Molly shuddered. Good, I said. Could you stay with Molly until she arrives? Of course. I nodded and said to Molly, Kid, things are getting complicated. I want you to go with your mom, all right? She nodded slowly without looking up. I sighed and got up out of my chair. Good. I left, Murphy and Mouse flanking me as I headed back into the hotel. Nice guy, Rick, I commented. Maybe a little manipulative. 
Just a tad, Murphy said. What happened? I told her. She let out a wicked chuckle. Wish I could have seen the look on their faces. Next time I'll take a picture. She nodded. So, what's our next move? Hey, we're in a hotel. I bopped my eyebrows at her. Let's get a room. Under peaceful circumstances, I'm sure that no rooms would have been available. Obviously, though, circumstances were far from peaceful, and there had been a minor avalanche of cancellations and early departures from the hotel, which only goes to show that people occasionally demonstrate evidence of sound judgment. The convention might have doubled the number of folks attending, but that didn't mean that they wanted to sleep here. There was a room available on the fifth floor. I paid an extra fee to allow Mouse to stay, and we got checked in. There was no one else in the elevator, and we rode in a silence that became increasingly tense. I shifted my weight from side to side and fiddled with one of the two plastic cards the desk clerk had given us. I cleared my throat. So here we are, I said, heading up to our hotel room. Murphy's cheeks turned pink. You are a pig, Dresden. Hey, I didn't put any innuendo into that. You did it yourself. She rolled her eyes, smiling a little. I watched numbers change on the elevator panel. I coughed. Yes, three, alone together. It is a little weird, she admitted. A little weird, I agreed. Should it be? she asked. I mean, we're just working together. We've done that before. We haven't done it in a hotel room. Yes, we have, Murphy said. But they all had corpses in them. Ah, true. No corpses this time, I said. <laughs> Murphy said, the night is young. Her reminder of the dangers before us put a bullet through the head of that conversation. Her smile vanished and her face regained its usual color. We went the rest of the way in silence until the elevator doors opened. Neither one of us moved to get out. It almost felt like there was some kind of invisible line drawn across the floor. A silence stretched. The doors tried to close. Murphy mashed down on the door open button with her thumb. Harry, she said finally, her voice very quiet, her blue eyes focused into distance. I've been thinking about, you know, us. Yeah? Yeah. How much thinking? She smiled a little. I'm not sure, really. I don't think I wanted to admit that, you know, things might change between us. Yes, she frowned at me. I'm not sure this is something that you would want. Between the two of us, I said, I think I probably have more insight into that one. She frowned. How do you know it's what you want? Last Halloween, I said. I wanted to murder Kincaid. Murphy glanced down as her cheeks turned pink. Oh. Not literally, I said, then paused. Well, I guess it was literally. But the urge died down a little. I see, she said. Are you and him, uh, I asked, leaving the question open. I saw him. At New Year's, she said. But we aren't in anything deep. Neither of us want that. We're friends. We enjoy the company, that's all. I frowned.
We're friends too, I said, but I've never taken your pants off. We're different, she said, her blush renewing. She gave me an oblique look from beneath pale eyelashes. Is it something you want? My heart sped up a little. Uh, pants removal? She arched a brow and tilted her head, waiting for an answer. Murph, I haven't been with a woman for... I shook my head. Look, you ask any guy if he wants to have sex, and he's going to say yes. Generally speaking, it's in the union manual. Her eyes sparkled. Including you? She pressed. I'm a guy, I said. So, yes. I frowned, thinking about it. And, and no. She smiled at me and nodded. I know, you couldn't do casual. You commit yourself too deeply, you care too much. We couldn't have something light. You would never settle for that. She was probably right. I nodded. I don't know if I could give you what you want, Harry. Then she took a deep breath and said, There are other reasons. We work together. I noticed. She didn't quite smile. What I mean is, I can't let relationships come close to my job. It isn't good for either. I said nothing. I'm a cop, Harry. My belly twisted a little as I realized the rejection in the words and the lack for any room for compromise. I know you are. I serve the law. You do, I said. You always have. I can't walk away from I won't walk away from it. I know that, too. And we're so different, our worlds. Not really, I said. We sort of hang around in the same one, most of the time. That's work, she said quietly. My work isn't everything about me, or it shouldn't be. I've tried a relationship built on having that in common. Rick, I said. She nodded. Pain flickered in her eyes. I never would have seen that a few years before. But I'd seen Murphy in good times and bad. Mostly bad. She'd never say it, never want me to say anything about it. But I knew that her failed marriage had wounded her more deeply than she would ever admit. In a way, I suspected that they explained some of her professional drive and ambition. She was determined to make the career work. Something had to. And maybe she'd been hurt even more deeply than that. Maybe badly enough that she wouldn't want to leave herself open to it again. Long-term relationships have the potential for long-term pain. Maybe she didn't want to go through it again. What if you weren't a cop? She smiled faintly. What if you weren't a wizard? Touché. But indulge me. She tilted her head and studied me for a minute. Then she said... What happens when Susan comes back? I shook my head. She isn't. Her tone turned dry. Indulge me. I frowned. I don't know, I said quietly. We decided to break it off, and... I suspect we'd see a lot of things very differently now. But if she wanted to try again, Murphy asked. I shrugged. I don't know. Let's say we get together, Murphy said. How many kids do you want? I blinked. What? You heard me. I don't... 
I blinked a few more times. I hadn't really thought about it. So I thought about it for a second. I thought about the merry chaos of the carpenter household. God, I'd have given anything for that when I was little. But any child of mine would inherit more than my eyes and killer chin. There were a lot of people who didn't think much of me. A lot of not people thought that way, too. Any child of mine would be bound to inherit some of my enemies, and worse, maybe some of my allies. My own mother had left me a legacy of perpetual suspicion and doubt and nasty little surprises that occasionally popped out of the hoary past. Murphy watched me, blue eyes steady and serious. It's a big question, she said quietly. I nodded slowly. Maybe you're thinking about this too much, Murph, I said. Logic and reason and planning for the future. What's in your heart doesn't need that. I used to think that too. She shook her head. I was wrong. Love isn't all you need. And I just don't see us together, Harry. You're dear to me. I couldn't ask for a kinder friend. I'd walk through fire for you. You already did, I said. But I don't think I could be the kind of lover you want. We wouldn't go together. Why not? At the end of the day, she said quietly, we're too different. You are going to live for a long time. If you don't get killed, centuries. I'm going to be around another forty, fifty years at the most. Yeah, I said. It was one of those things I tried really hard not to dwell on. She said even more quietly, I don't know if I'll get serious with a man again. But if I do, I want it to be with someone who will build a family with me, grow old with me. She reached up and touched the side of my face with warm fingers. You're a good man, Harry. But you couldn't be what I need, either. Murphy took her thumb from the button and left the elevator. I didn't follow her right away. She didn't look back. Stab. Twist. God, I love being a wizard. Chapter 23 The room was typical of my usual hotel experience. Clean, plain, and empty. I made sure the blinds were pulled, looked around, and shoved the small round table at one side of the room over against the wall to leave me some open space in the middle of the floor. I slung my backpack down on the bed. Need anything? Murphy asked. She stood in the doorway to the room. She didn't want to come in. Think I have it all. Just need some quiet to get it set up. There was no reason not to give Murphy a way out of the awkwardness the conversation had brought on. There's something I'm curious about. Maybe you could check it out. Pell's Theater, Murphy guessed. I could hear some relief in her voice. Yes. Maybe you could cruise by it and see what's to be seen. She frowned. Think there might be something in there? I don't know enough to think anything yet, but it's possible, I said. You get a bad feeling about anything, don't hang around. Just vamoose. Don't worry, she said. I already plan to do that. She went to the door. Shouldn't take me long. I'll contact you in a half an hour, let's say. 
Sure, I said. Neither one of us voiced what we both were thinking. That if Murphy missed the check-in, she'd probably be dead, or dying, or worse. Half an hour. She nodded and left, shutting the door behind her. Mouse went over to the door, sniffed at it for a moment, then walked in a little circle three times and settled down on the floor to sleep. I frowned down at the carpet and opened my backpack. Chalk wouldn't do for a circle, not on carpet like that. I'd have to go with the old standby of fine white sand. The maids would doubtless find it annoying to clean up, but life could be hard sometimes. I pulled out a glass bottle of specially prepared sand and put it on the table, along with the main blob of Play-Doh, and bobbed the skull. Orange lights kindled in the skull's eye sockets. Can I talk now? Yeah, I said. You been listening to things? Yeah, Bob said, depressed. You are never going to get laid. I glared at the skull. I'm just saying, he said, voice defensive. It isn't my fault, Harry. She'd probably bang you if you didn't take it so god-awful seriously. The subject. Change it, I suggested in a flat voice. We're working now. Right, Bob said. So, you're planning on a standard detection web ward for the building? Yep, I said. It isn't going to be very helpful, Bob said. I mean, by the time something manifests enough to set off your web, it's going to be all the way into the real world. While you're running for the stairs, it's already going to be tearing into somebody. It isn't perfect, I said, but it's all I've got, unless you have a better idea. The thing about having several centuries of experience and knowledge at my disposal is that it doesn't do me any good, unless I know what it is you want me to help you fight, Bob said. So far, all you know is that you've got an inbound phobophage. That's not specific enough? No, Bob said. I can think of about two hundred different kinds of phobophages off the top of my head. And I could probably come up with two hundred more if I took a minute to think about it. That many of them who can do what this thing did? Take a solid form and attack? Bob looked at me as though he thought me very thick. Believe it or not, the old take-the-form-of-the-victim's-worst-fear routine is pretty much the most common move in the phobophage handbook. Oh, right. I shook my head. But this whole place is open territory. There's no threshold to use to anchor anything heavier than a web. At least if I do that much, maybe I can get into position fast enough to directly intervene when the thing shows up again. Things, Bob corrected me. Plural. Phages are like ants. First one shows up, then two, then a hundred. I exhaled. Crap, I said. Maybe we can come at this from a different angle. Is there any way I could redirect them while they're crossing over? Make it harder for them to get here? Bob's eyelights brightened. Maybe. Maybe, yes. You might be able to raise a veil over this whole place from the other side. Irk, I said. You're saying I could hide this place from the phages, but only from the never-never? Pretty much. Even then, it would be a calculated risk. How so? It all depends on how they're finding this place, Bob said. 
I mean, if these are just naturally arriving phages, finding a hunting ground, a veil won't stop them. It might slow them down, but it won't stop them. Let's assume that it isn't a coincidence, I said. Okay, assuming that, the next variable is finding out whether they're being summoned or sent. I frowned. There are things strong enough to send them through from the other side? I didn't think that ever happened anymore. Hence the popularity of working through mortal summoners. Oh, it's doable, Bob assured me. It just takes a hell of a lot more juice to open the way to the mortal world from the other side. I frowned. How much power are we talking? Big, Bob assured me. Like the Earl King, or an Archangel, or one of the old gods. I got a shivery feeling in my stomach. A fairy queen? Oh, sure, I guess so. He frowned. You think this is fairy work? Something is definitely screwy in Elfland, I said. More so than normal, I mean. Bob made a gulping sound. Oh, we're not going to go visiting the fairies or anything, are we? Not if I can help it, I said. I wouldn't take you with me if it came to that. Oh, he sighed. Good. One of these days, you're going to have to tell me what you did to make Mab want to kill you. Yeah, sure. Bob said in that tone of voice you use while sweeping things under the rug. But we should also consider the third possibility. A summoner, I said. Given that someone actually threw a ward in my way the last time the Fade showed up, that seems to be the most likely of the three. I think so, too, Bob said. In which case, you're in trouble, I grunted, and started unpacking candles, matches, and my old army surplus knife. Why? Without a threshold to build on. You can't put up any proper defense. And even if you do cross over and set up a veil to try to keep the phages from finding the place, their summoner is going to draw them in. I finished, following the line of reasoning. It's like I could blanket the surrounding area in fog. But if they have someone on this end, the phages will have a beacon they can use to home in on the hotel. Right, Bob said. And then the summoner just opens the door from his side, and they're in. I frowned and said, It's all about finding the summoner, then. Which you can't do until they actually summon something, Bob said. Hell's bells, I complained. There's got to be something we can do to prevent it. Not especially, Bob said. Sorry, boss. Until you know more, you can't do anything but react. I scowled. Damn it. Then it's the web or nothing. At least if I use that, I might be able to identify the summoner. At the low, low cost of the phages mauling or killing someone else. Unless... Bob, I said, frowning over the idea. What if I didn't try to hide the hotel or keep these things away? What if I... Uh, just put a little top spin on the phages on the way in? Bob's eyelights brightened even more. Ooh, classic White Council doctrine. When the phages come through, you point them straight at the guy who summoned them. Give him a dose of his own medicine. 
Right up the ass, I confirmed. There's an image, Bob said, a summoning suppository. It's doable, isn't it? Sure, Bob said. I mean, you have everything you need for that. You know the phages are after fear, and that they're probably using his power as a beacon. Your web tells you something is stirring. You conjure up a big ball of fear, target the same beacon the phages are using, and let it fly. It'd be like hanging a stake around his neck and throwing him to the lions, I said, grinning. Hail Caesar, Bob confirmed. The phages will go right after him. And once he's out of the game, I veil the hotel from the phages. No more convention attendees get hurt. Bad guy gets a lethal dose of dramatic irony. The good guys win, Bob cheered. Or at least you do. Y you're still a good guy, right? You know how confusing the whole good-evil concept is for me. I'm thinking about changing it to them and us for simplicity's sake, I said. I like this plan. So there's got to be a catch to it somewhere. True, Bob admitted. It's going to be a little tricky when it comes to the timing. You won't be able to sense the beacon until the phages actually step through from the never-never and take material form. If you haven't redirected them by then, it'll be too late. I nodded, frowning. That gives me, what, maybe twenty seconds? Only if they're really lame, Bob said. Probably ten seconds, maybe even less. I frowned. Damn it, that's a small window. I thought of another problem. Not only that, but I'll be shooting blind. There won't be any way to tell who I'm setting the phages after. What if he's standing in a crowd? He's going to be summoning fiends from the netherworld to wreak horror and death on the populace, Bob pointed out in a patient voice. That won't lend itself to blending in to a crowd. Good point. You'll probably be somewhere private, quiet. I shook my head. Even so, I'd be a lot happier if this was a little less dicey. But I don't see any other way to stop these things from hurting anyone else. Until we have more information, I don't see what else you could do, boss. I grunted. I'd better get this web up and running, then. Mouse's collar tag clinked against the buckle, and I looked over my shoulder. The dog had lifted his head from the floor, staring intently at the door. A second later, someone knocked. Mouse hadn't started growling, and his tail thumped the wall a few times as I went to the door, sounding the all clear. That was fast, I said, opening the door. I thought you were going to be a half an hour, Murph. Molly stood in the hallway. An overnight bag hung over her shoulder. She drooped, the way my house plants always used to when I was still optimistic enough to keep buying new ones. Her pink and blue hair hung down listlessly, and her cheeks were marked with the remains of several mascara-laden tear tracks. She looked rumpled, tired, uncertain, and lonely. Hi, she said. Her voice wasn't much more than a whisper. Hey, I told her. I thought you were waiting for your mom. I was, she said. I am. But I'm kind of messed up. She waved her hand gingerly at herself. I wanted to clean up a little, but they won't let me use the bathroom in Nelson's room. I was hoping I could borrow yours just for a minute.
It would have been easier to dropkick a puppy than to turn the kid away. Sure, I said. Just keep it quiet, okay? I stepped back into the room, and Molly followed me, pausing to scratch Mouse behind the ears. She looked past me to the open floor space and the things I had set out. What are you doing? she asked. Magic, I said. What does it look like I'm doing? She smiled a little. Oh, right. I waved a hand at my materials. I'm going to try to prevent another attack from hurting anyone. Can you do that? she asked. Maybe, I said. I hope so. I can't believe. I mean, I knew there were things out there, but... My friends. Rosie. Her lower lip quivered, and her eyes filled with tears that didn't quite fall. I didn't have much I could say to comfort her. I'm going to stop it from happening again, I said quietly. I'm sorry I didn't move fast enough the first time. She looked down again and nodded without speaking. She swallowed several times. Listen, I told her quietly. This is serious stuff. You need to talk about it, not with me, I added as she looked up at me. With your mom. Molly shook her head. She isn't... Molly, I sighed. Life can be short and cruel. You saw that last night. You gotta look at the kind of thing your dad deals with all the time. She didn't respond. I said quietly, Even knights can die, Molly. Shiro did. It could happen to Michael, too. She lifted her head abruptly, staring at me as if in shock. How does that make you feel? I asked. She chewed on her lip. Scared. It scares your mom, too. It scares her a lot. She deals with it by holding on hard to the people around her. Maybe too hard sometimes. That's why you feel like she's trying to keep you a little kid. She probably is. But it isn't because she's a control freak. It's because she loves you all so much. You, your dad, your family. And she's frightened that something bad could happen. She's desperate to do everything she can to keep you all safe. Molly didn't look up or respond. Life is short, I said. Too short to waste it on stupid arguments. I'm not saying your mom is perfect because God knows she isn't. But my God, Molly, you've got the kind of family people like me would kill for. You think they'll always be there later, but they might not be. Life doesn't give you any guarantees. I let that sink in for a minute, and then said, I promised your dad that I'd ask you to talk to her. I told him I'd do my best to get the two of you to work things out. She looked up at me, crying now, silently. More dark makeup trailed down her cheeks. Will you sit down with her, Molly? Talk? She took a shaking breath and said, I don't know if it'll do any good. We've said so much. I can't force you to do it. No one can do that but you. She sniffled for a moment. It won't do any good. I don't expect miracles. Just try to talk to her, please. She took a breath and then nodded once. Thank you, I said. She tried to smile once and hovered outside the bathroom door for a moment more. Molly, I asked, are you okay? She nodded, but she didn't move either. I frowned. Something you want to say?
She looked up at me for just a second. No, she said then and shook her head. No, it's nothing, really. Thank you. I won't be long. She stepped into the bathroom, shut the door, and locked it. The shower started a moment later. Wow, Bob said from behind me, somehow inserting a leer into the word. I didn't realize you liked them quite that fresh, Harry. I glared at him. What? Did you see the body on her magnificent rack? Blonde Nautic babage, but all pierced and dressed in black, which means she's probably into at least one kind of kink, and all tender and emotional and vulnerable to boot, taking her clothes off right here in your room. Kink? You don't... Look, there's no way to... I sputtered. No, Bob, just no. For crying out loud, she's seventeen. Better move quick then, Bob said, before anything starts to droop. Taste of perfection while you can, that's what I always say. Bob, what, he said. That isn't how things are. Not now, Bob said. But you go get in that shower with her, and you've got your own personal cable TV erotic movie come true. I rubbed at the bridge of my nose. Hell's bells, the whole idea is wrong, Bob. Just wrong. Harry, even a nerd should know that it's no coincidence when a girl shows up at a man's hotel room. You know all she really wants is to... Bob, I snapped, cutting him off. Even if she wanted to, which she doesn't, nothing is happening with the girl. I'm trying to work here. You aren't helping. I'd hate to disrupt your most recent attempt to court death and agony, he said brightly. You should stick me somewhere else, where I won't distract you. On the counter in the bathroom, for example. I slapped open one of the empty dresser drawers and tossed the skull in there instead. Bob sputtered a few muffled curses in ancient Greek, something about sheep and a skin rash. I looked up from the drawer into the room's mirror and found myself facing not my reflection but Lashiel's image instead, angelic and lovely and poised. The perverted little creep has a point, my host, she said. I jabbed a finger at the mirror and said, Bob is my little creep, and the only one who gets to call him names is me. Now go away. Ah, Lashiel said, and the image faded to translucence, my own reflection appearing to replace it. Fascinating, though, she added just before vanishing. That boyfriend Nelson bears quite the striking physical resemblance to you. Then she was gone. Damn it, stupid demons. Always with the last word. Worse, she had a point. I eyed the bathroom door and reviewed the past day or so and my interactions with the girl before that. I had always been someone her father respected and her mother disapproved of. I showed up once in a blue moon in a big black coat, usually looking roughed up and dangerous, and I'd been doing so since she was young enough to be very impressionable. Hell, when you got right down to it, Charity's disapproval alone might have been enough to make me seem interesting to a rebellious teenage girl. 
I came to the reluctant conclusion that it was possible Molly might have certain ideas in her head. It might well explain the most recent awkward silences and halting pauses. She'd always liked me, and it wasn't outrageous to think that it might have developed into something more, and that I'd be a right bastard to do anything that might encourage those ideas, even inadvertently. Maybe Bob and Lashiel were wrong, and in fact nothing like that was going on. But the passions of youth, its attractions and desires, were a minefield one took lightly at one's own peril. Magnificent rack notwithstanding. Molly was still, in every important way, a child. My friend's child, to boot. She was hurting. It bothered me and I wanted to help her. But I had to be aware of the fact that my sympathy could be misinterpreted. The kid had issues and she needed someone to help her work things out. She didn't need someone who would only make her more confused. Steam curled out from under the bathroom door. An actual hot shower. Not merely the illusion of one. I shook my head and got back to the detection web. As spells went, this one was pretty big, but it wasn't complicated. I'd created a long-term version of the same basic working in the neighborhood around my apartment in order to detect approaching mystical entities. The one I wanted for the hotel was the same thing, but I didn't have to bother with setting it up as a long-term construct. A sunrise or two at most would erode the spell, but with any luck, I wouldn't need it for any longer. I took the Play-Doh in hand, grabbed three candles in their own wooden holders, poured the sand in a circle around me, and began gathering in my power, painstakingly creating mental images of the web of energy I needed to weave between the points of the hotel I'd marked out with Play-Doh. It didn't take me a terribly long time to set it up, Anyone with some basic skills and desire enough could have done something like this. Or at least they could have done it on a smaller scale. Weaving a web throughout the whole building took a lot of heavy lifting, magically speaking. But it wasn't complicated. And fifteen minutes later, I solidified the image of the energy patterns in my mind and whispered, Magius, Orbius, Spiritus, Oculus. I poured my will and my magic out with the words as I spoke them, and my body briefly lit up with a flood of tingling energy that raced along all of my limbs, down into the lump of Play-Doh, and swirled in tight spirals around the three candles that would serve as my ward flames. The spell's energy flashed, appearing as a tiny stream of faint flickers, like bursts of static electricity and the candles each flickered to life, steady little flames born of the spell. I broke the circle of sand as I spoke, and the power blossomed out through the hotel, into the shape I'd imagined, invisible strands flickering into instant shape, like ice crystals forming in the space of a heartbeat, spreading unseen strands throughout the hotel. My balance wobbled a bit as I finished the spell, and the energy left me submerging me in a temporary flood of fatigue. I sat there with my head down, breathing hard for a minute. Wow, Murphy said, her tone less than impressed. I looked up to see her shutting the room's door behind her. What did you do? I waved around to indicate the hotel and panted. If bad mojo shows up in the hotel, the spell will sense it. I gestured at the three candles. 
Take one with you. If you see it flare up, it means we've got incoming. Murphy frowned, but nodded. How much warning will they give us? Not much, I said. A couple of minutes, maybe less. Maybe a lot less. Three candles, she said. One for you, one for me, and... I thought we'd see if Rollins wanted one. Is he here? Murphy said. Gut feeling, I said. He seems like the kind who sees something through. He also seems like the kind who's been injured. No chance he'll get active duty here. He didn't have it at the hospital either, I pointed out. True, Murphy said. I caught my breath a little and asked, Anything at Pell's Theater? Murphy nodded and crossed the room to pick up two of the candles. A lot of nothing. Place was locked up tight. Chains on the front doors and the back door was locked. Sign on the door said they were closed until further notice. I grunted. You'd think Pell would be wild to have the place open if the convention was providing a significant amount of his income, even if he was in a hospital bed. Hell, especially if he was in a hospital bed. Unless he doesn't have anyone he trusts to run it for him. But he does have someone he trusts enough to lock it up? I said, that doesn't track. Pell sure as hell didn't lock up after he was attacked. Murphy frowned, but she didn't disagree with me. I tried to call him to ask him about it, but the nurse said he was sleeping. I ran my fingers back through my hair, frowning over the situation. Curiouser and curiouser, I said. We're missing something here. Like what? Murphy asked. Another player, I said. Someone we haven't seen yet. Murphy made a thoughtful sound. Maybe, but imagining invisible perpetrators or hidden conspiracies veers pretty close to paranoia. Maybe not another suspect, then, I said thoughtfully. Maybe another motive. Like what? she asked, though I could see the wheels turning in her head as she followed the logic chain from the notion. These phage attacks look fairly simple at first glance. Like... I don't know, shark attacks. Something hungry shows up to eat someone and then leaves. Natural occurrences, or rather typical supernatural occurrences. But they aren't random, Murphy said. Someone is sending them to a specific place. Someone who used magic to try to stop you when you interfered with one of the phages. Which begs the obvious question, I began. Murphy nodded and finished the thought. Why do it in the first place? I stuck my left hand out to one side of me and said, Look over here. Then I mimed a short jab with my right fist. It's a rope-a-dope, Murphy said, her eyes narrowing. A distraction. But from what? Something worse than homicidal, shape-shifting, supernatural predators, apparently, I mused. Something we'd want to stop a lot more. Like what? I shook my head and shrugged. I don't know. Not yet, anyway. Murphy grimaced. Leave it to you to make paranoia sound plausible. It's only paranoia if I'm wrong, I said. Murphy glanced over her shoulder and shivered a little. Yeah. She turned back to me, squared her shoulders, and took a steadying breath. Okay. What's the play here? I assume you've got something in mind beyond having a minute or two of warning. Yes, I said. What? she asked. It gets kind of technical, I said. I'll try to keep up, she said. I nodded.
Anytime something from the spirit world wants to cross into the mortal world, it has to do a number of things to cross the border. It has to have a point of origin, a point of destination, and enough energy to open the way. Then it has to cross over, summon ectoplasm from the never-never, and infuse it with more energy to give itself a physical body. She frowned. What do you mean by points of origin and destination? Links, I told her. It's sort of like landmarks. Usually the creature you're calling up can serve as its own point of origin. Whoever is opening the way across is usually the destination. Can anyone be the destination? She asked. No, I said. You can't call up anything that isn't... I frowned, looking for words. You can't call up anything that doesn't have some kind of reflection inside you, a kind of point of reference for the spirit being. If you want evil, nasty, hungry beings, there's got to be evil, nasty, and hunger inside of you. She nodded. Does the way have to be opened from this side? Generally, I said. It takes a hell of a lot more oomph to get it done from the other side. She nodded. Go on. I told her about my plan to turn the phages back upon their summoner. I like that, she said, using their own monsters against them. But what does that leave me to do? You buy me time, I said. There will be a moment, just when the phage or phages cross over, where they will be vulnerable. If you're able to see one and distract it, it will give me more time to aim them back at their summoner. And it's possible that my spell might not work. If it goes south, you'll be near enough to help clear people out, maybe do them some good. Murphy began to speak, then she paused, turned around, and asked, Harry, is there someone in the shower? Uh, yeah, I said, and rubbed at the back of my neck. She arched a brow and waited, but I didn't offer any explanation. Maybe it was my way of getting petty vengeance for her brutal honesty in the elevator. All right, then, she said, and took up the candles. I'll get downstairs and look for Rollins. Otherwise, I'll grab one of my guys from SI. Sounds good, I said. Murphy left while I started planning out my redirection spell. It didn't take me long. Mouse lifted his head suddenly, and a second later someone knocked at the door. I went over and opened it. Charity stood on the other side, dressed in jeans, a knit tank top, and a blue blouse of light cotton. Her features were drawn with stress, her shoulders clenched in unconscious tension. When she saw me, her features became remote and neutral, very controlled. Hello, Mr. Dresden. It was probably the friendliest greeting I could expect from her. Hey, I said. Standing beside her was an old man, a little under average height. What was left of his hair was gray, trimmed neatly, though hardly a fringe remained. He had eyes the color of robin's eggs, spectacles, a comfortably heavy build, and wore black slacks and a black shirt. The white square of his clerical collar stood out distinctively against the shirt. He smiled when he saw me and offered me his hand. I shook it, smiling and had no need to fake it. Father Forthill, what are you doing here? Harry, he said amiably, lending some moral support, by and large. He's my attorney, Charity added.
I blinked. He is? He is, Forthill said, smiling. I passed the bar before I entered the orders. I've kept my hand in on behalf of the diocese and my parishioners. I do some pro bono work from time to time, too. He's a lawyer, I said. He's a priest. This does not compute. Forthill let out a belly laugh. <laughs> Oxymoronic. Hey, did I start calling you names? I grinned at him. What can I do for you? Molly was supposed to be waiting for us downstairs, Charity said. But we haven't found her. Do you know where she is? The universe conspired against me. If Charity had asked the question ten seconds sooner, I would have been fine. But instead, the bathroom door opened and Molly appeared in a swirl of steam. She had a towel wrapped around her hair and was holding another around her torso. Hotel towels, and Molly's torso being what they were, the towel didn't quite get all the way around her and barely maintained modesty. Harry, she said, I left my bag out in the... She broke off suddenly, staring at Charity. This, uh, th isn't what it looks like, I stammered, turning back to Charity. Her eyes blazed with cold, righteous rage. An old Kipling axiom about the female of the species being more deadly than the male flashed through my mind right about the time Charity introduced my chin to her right hook. Light flashed behind my eyes and I found myself flat on my back while the ceiling spun around a little. Mother, Molly said in a shocked voice. I looked up in time to see Fort Hill put a firm hand on Charity's arm, preventing her from following up the first blow. She narrowed her eyes at Fort Hill, but the old man's fingers dug into her biceps until she gave him a slight nod and took a small step back into the hallway. Dress, she told Molly, implacable authority in her tone. We're leaving. The kid looked like she might start falling apart on the spot. She grabbed her bag, ducked into the bathroom, and was dressed in under a minute. There was nothing going on, I mumbled. It came out sounding more like, I may not be able to keep you away from my husband, Charity said, her tone cold, her diction precise. But if you come near one of my children again, I will kill you. Thank you for calling me. She left, the weary Molly following her. There was nothing going on, I said again to Fort Hill. This time it sounded mostly like English. He sighed, looking after the pair. I believe you. He gave me a smile that was one part amusement to four parts apology and followed them. Murphy must not have reached the elevators before Charity and Fort Hill had arrived. She appeared in the doorway, peering inside the room, and then back the way Charity had gone. Uh, she said, you all right? I guess, I sighed. Her mouth twitched, but she didn't quite smile or laugh at me. Seems to me that you should have seen that one coming. Don't laugh at me, I said. It hurts. You've had worse, she said heartlessly. And it serves you right for letting the little girl into your hotel room. Now get up. I'll be downstairs. She left, too. Mouse came over and started patiently nuzzling my chin and putting slobbering dog kisses on the bruise I could feel forming there. Women confuse me, I told him. Mouse sat down, 
jaws dropping open into a doggy grin. I groaned, pushed myself to my feet, and set about preparing the redirection spell, while outside my room's window the sun raced for its nightly rendezvous with the western horizon. Chapter 24 I shut the door again and rushed to prepare the beacon spell, hurrying, certain that every second counted. I would only get one shot at diverting the phages, and I finished my preparations in feverish haste. Nothing happened. The sun set, leaving me mostly in the dark, since I hadn't bothered to turn on any lights. Nothing continued happening. I knelt in my circle of sand until my legs cramped and then went numb, and my knees felt like they were resting in molten lead. And all that nothing just kept on coming. Oh, come on, I snarled. Bring on the doom already. From his spot near the door, Mouse heaved a sigh. Oh, shut up, I told him. I didn't dare take a break. If the bad guys moved and I wasn't ready, people would get hurt. So I knelt there, holding the spell ready in my mind, uncomfortable as hell, and swearing sulfurously under my breath. Stupid, lame-ass summoner. What the hell was he waiting for? Any half-competent villain would have had monsters roaming the halls hours ago. Mouse's tail thumped against the wall, and a moment later the room's lock clicked, and Rollins opened the door. He was wearing jeans and a long-sleeved shirt that concealed the bandages on his wounded arm, and he carried a ward flame candle in one hand. The blocky, dark-skinned officer leaned down and held his hand out to Mouse, who sniffed Rollins in typical canine fashion, and wagged his tail some more. Rollins remained in the doorway and said, Hello? Dresden? Here, I muttered. Rollins thumped at the wall until he found the lights and flicked them on. He stared at me for a minute, eyebrows slowly rising. Uh-huh. There's something I don't see every day. I grimaced. Murphy found you, I see. Almost like she's a detective. Rollins said, grinning. Your boss know you're here? I asked. Not so far, he replied. But I expect someone might notice and tell him about me at some point. He won't be happy, I said. I just hope I can live with myself later. He waved his little candle. Murphy sent me up here to make sure you were still alive. I'm gonna need knee surgery, I sighed. I never planned on it taking this long. Uh-huh, Rollins said again. You ain't one of those Satan worshippers, are you? No, I said, more like Pythagoras. Pahoo? He invented triangles. Ah, Rollins said, as if that had explained everything. So, what are you doing here? I explained it to him, though it looked like he was having trouble accepting my words. Maybe I lacked credibility. But I figured he would have moved by now. Crooks are funny that way. He agreed. No respect. Scrunched up my face in thought. I was hungry, thirsty, tired, hurting, and I had to use the bathroom in the worst way. None of those things were going to become easier to bear as the night went on, and I needed to have all the concentration I could get. Okay, I said. Be smart. Take a break. I leaned down and broke the circle by sweeping the sand aside with my hand letting the energy of the spell I'd been holding ready drain away 
At least I'd already done it once. Getting it back into position wouldn't take nearly as long as the first time. I tried to rise, but my legs were incommunicado. I grimaced at Rollins and said, Give me a hand here. He set his candle aside and helped me up. I wobbled precariously for a couple of seconds, but then stumbled to the bathroom and back out. You okay? he asked. I'm good. Tell Murphy to hold steady. Rollins nodded. We'll be downstairs. He paused and said, Hope this happens soon. There's some kind of costume contest going on. Is it bad? There are a lot of skimpy get-ups, and some of those people should not be wearing them. Call the fashion police, I said. Rollins nodded gravely. They've crossed a line. Do me a favor, I asked him. Take Mouse out for a walk. I dug a couple of bills from my back pocket and passed them to Rollins. Maybe get him a hot dog or something. Sure, Rollins agreed. I like dogs. The dog's tail thumped rapidly against the wall. Whatever you do, don't give him nachos. I didn't bring my gas mask with me. Rollins nodded. Sure. Keep your eyes open, I said. Tell Murph I'll be reset in a couple of minutes. Rollins grunted and left. I had a canteen of fruit punch in my backpack, along with some beef jerky and some chocolate. I went to the bag and started wolfing down all three while pacing back and forth to stretch my legs. Holding myself ready to strike had been more than simply a physical strain. My head felt like someone had packed it in wool, while at the same time my senses seemed slightly distorted. Edges made sharper, curves more ambiguous, the whole combining to make the hotel room feel like a toned-down Escher painting. There was no help for that. The use of magic was mostly in the mind, and holding a spell together for a long time often triggered disconcerting side effects. I polished off the food as fast as I could gulp it down, went easy on the drink in case I was there for another several hours, and settled back down in my circle, preparing to close it again. When the room's phone rang, Deja vu, I commented to the empty room. I stood up, my knees creaking, and went to the phone. Dresden taxidermy, I said. You snuff it, we'll stuff it. There was a beat of startled silence from the phone, and then a young man's voice said, Uh, is this Harry Dresden? I recognized the voice. Boyfriend Nelson. That made my ears perk up, metaphorically speaking. Yeah, this is him, I said. This is, I know who it is, I told him. How did you know where I was? Sandra, he said. I called her cell. She told me you'd checked in. Uh-huh. Why are you calling me? Molly said, she said you helped people. He paused to take a breath and then said, I think I need your help. Uh, again. Why? I asked. Keep the questions open, I thought. Never give him one with a simple answer. What's going on? Last night, during the attacks, I think I saw something, I sighed. It was going around, I agreed. But if you saw something, you're a witness to a crime, kid. You need to show up and work with the cops. They get sort of unreasonable with people who go all evasive when they want to ask questions about a murder. But I think some... thing is following me, he said. An unsteady tremor shook Nelson's voice. Look, 
They're just cops, man. They just have guns. I don't think they can help me. I hope you can. Why? I asked him. What is it that you saw? No, he said. Not on the phone. I, I want to meet with you. I want you to promise me your help. I'll tell you then. Right. Because it wasn't like I had anything better to be doing. Look, kid. Nelson's voice suddenly went thready with breathless fear. Oh, God. I can't stay here. Please. Please. Fine. Fine, I said, trying to keep my voice strong and steady. The kid was scared. The bone-deep, knee-watering, half-crazy kind of scared that makes rational thinking all but impossible. Listen to me. Stay around people, as many of them as you can. Go to St. Mary of the Angels Church. It's holy ground, and you'll be safe there. Ask for Father Forthill. He's a little guy, mostly bald, glasses, bright blue eyes. Tell him everything. Tell him I'm coming to collect you as soon as I can. Yes, all right, thank you, Nelson said. The words hysterically rushed. There was a brief clatter, and then I heard running footsteps on concrete. He hadn't even gotten the phone back into its cradle before he'd taken off at a dead sprint. I chewed on my lip. The kid was definitely in trouble, or at least genuinely believed that he was. If so, it meant that maybe he had seen something last night. Something that made it important for someone to kill him. I.e. some kind of damning evidence that would probably help me figure out what the hell was going on. I felt a stab of anxiety. Holy ground was a powerful deterrent to the things that went bump in the night. Or, in this case, things that went stab, stab, hack, slash, rip in the night. But it wasn't invulnerable. If something of sufficient supernatural strength really was after the kid, it might be able to force its way into the church. Damn it. But what choice did I have? If I left my position here, any fresh attack could make last night's look like a friendly round of candy land. What could he possibly have seen that would make him worth killing? Why the hell was he being followed? I felt like I was floundering around in the dark inside someone else's house, benighted of savoir-faire enough to move with assurance. I was spread too thin. If I didn't start finding more pieces of the puzzle and put them together, and soon, more people would die. I could only be in one place at one time. If the kid was in real trouble, he'd be as safe at the church with Fort Hill as anywhere in town, short of the protection of my heavily warded apartment. Meanwhile, there were a bunch of other kids here who looked to be the next meal on the Phobophage buffet. I had to act where I could do the most good. It was a cold sort of equation, the calculus of survival, but undeniable. I'd get to Nelson after I'd taken care of business at the hotel. I settled down on my knees again, carefully, closed the circle, and began to pick up the pieces of the redirection spell once more. The single ward flame candle on the room's dresser suddenly exploded into lurid red light, Simultaneously, I felt a heavy thrumming in the air, where the strands of my web spell had suddenly encountered powerful magic in motion, drawing my thoughts and attention to a back hallway in the hotel, not far from the kitchens, to the hall outside the hotel's exercise room, and a swift double thrum from another of the hotel's bathrooms. Four attackers this time. Four of them at least. 
I had ten seconds to get the spell off. Nine, maybe less. Eight, I threw myself into the spell. Seven, it had to be fast. Six, it had to be perfect on the first attempt. Five, if I screw this one up, someone else would pay for it. Four, they'd pay in blood. Three, two, one. Chapter 25 I readied my spell, terrified that I was already too late, terrified that I made a critical mistake, terrified that more innocents were about to face hideous agony and death. That was how it had to be. If I wanted to lure the phages from their rampage by directing them after a richer source of fear, it had to come from somewhere. Specifically, it had to come from me. If I tried to use falsified emotion, it would no more have worked on them than an attempt to make a gorilla interested in a plastic banana. The fear had to be genuine. Of course, I hadn't really planned on being quite this afraid. Being taken off my guard and handed a time limit had added an edge of panicked hysteria to the ample anxiety I already had. The spell coalesced and time came to an abrupt stop. In that illusory stasis, my senses were on fire. The presence of the dangerous entities now entering the material world rippled through my detection web, a jittery, fluttering sensation. The energy of the spell burned like an invisible star before my outstretched hands, and my terror rushed into it and fused with the spell. Streamers from the lure whipped out along the lines of power that constituted my detection web, brushing lightly at the entities, attracting their attention, giving them a whiff of rich sustenance. And somewhere, in the middle of all that, I felt a single, quiet, quivering pulse, a living presence that could only be the phage's summoner and beacon. Gotcha, I hissed, and with an effort of will broke the circle and sent the spell winging toward him. Time resumed its course, the energy that powered the spell fled out of me in another rush and left me lying on my side, struggling to draw in enough breath. I could feel the spell sizzling down the lines of power for the summoner, and a heartbeat later there was a sense of impact as the spell went home. As it happened, the entities my web touched went abruptly still, the web ceasing its trembling, and then... They all surged forward into sudden motion, vanishing from the web and presumably streaking after the lure. All but one. A breath or two after the entities had departed, my web trembled again, now growing more agitated, its motion a kind of subliminal pressure against my thoughts. I had missed one. My spell had gotten out in time to draw away the others, but either my web had failed me at some point, or the remaining phage had been quicker on the draw than his buddies from the Never Never. I could feel it moving from the hotel's kitchens toward the convention halls. I wanted to curl into a fetal position and go into a coma. Instead, I shoved my wobbly way to my feet, took up my pack, and opened the drawer to get Bob. Did it work? he chirped. Almost, I said. There's one left. Keep your head down. Oh, very funny, he began. I zipped the skull into my pack, 
took up my staff and blasting rod, and shuffled wheezily out to find the remaining phage before it found someone else. My legs almost gave out just thinking about taking the stairs, so I rode the elevator down to the first floor. I heard nothing until the floor indicator told me we'd just passed the second floor, at which point I began to hear frightened, muffled screams. The elevator hit the first floor, and the doors had just begun to roll open when the power went out. Blackness fell over the hotel. The screams redoubled. I took out my pentacle amulet and sent enough of my will into it to make it glow with pale blue wizard's light. I jammed my staff into the slightly open elevator doors and levered them apart, then slipped out into the hotel. Though the sun had set more than an hour before, the crowded convention hall had remained stuffy while its air conditioners labored in vain. I got my bearings and headed for the kitchen. As I did, the air temperature plummeted, sending the hotel's climate from near sauna to near freezing in a handful of seconds. The suddenly cooled air could no longer contain the oppressive humidity it had been holding, and this resulted in a sudden thick fog that coalesced out of nowhere and cut visibility down to maybe three or four long steps. Damn it. The phages that had appeared so far seemed to be specialists in the up-close-and-personal venue of violence, whereas wheezy wizards like me prefer to do business from across the street or down the block or maybe from a neighboring dimension. Farther away, if possible. Wizards have a capacity for recovering from injury that might be more than most humans, but that was a long-term deal. In a bar fight, it wasn't going to do me any good. Hell, I didn't even have my duster with me. And now that the cold had rolled over the hotel, I missed it for multiple reasons. I put my amulet back on, then shook out my shield bracelet and readied it for use, creating a second source of glowing blue light, though by accident, not design. The silver bracelet I used to focus magic into a tangible plane of force had been damaged in the same fire that took most of my left hand, and sparks of blue light tended to dribble from it whenever I moved my arm around. I had to be ready to use the shield at an instant's notice. It would be the only thing between me and whatever might come rushing from the fog. I went with my staff in my right hand. When it came to taking apart rampaging monsters, I preferred my blasting rod. But I've had an incident or two involving buildings and fire. If I went blazing away at the thing in a crowded hotel and burned the place down, it would kill more people than the rampage would have. The staff was a subtle tool, not as potent a weapon as the blasting rod, but it was more versatile, magically speaking. Plus, in a pinch, I could brain someone with it, which isn't subtle, but sure as hell is reassuring. The emergency lights hadn't snapped on, so either someone had sabotaged them, or there was enough raw magical energy flying around to take them out. But as I moved out toward the kitchens... I didn't feel anything like the kind of ambient energy it would take to blow out something as simple as a battery-powered light. That meant that someone had deliberately taken the emergency lights offline, by magical means or otherwise. And it wasn't hard to guess why. Gunshots rang out, weirdly muted by the building's acoustics. Flat, heavy sounds, like someone swinging a baseball bat at a metal trash can. Screams and sounds of confusion, fear, worry, and even pain 
continued all around me as people fumbled in the dark, tripped, fell, or collided with furniture and one another. The building was already emptying, at least here on the first floor. But the sudden darkness had resulted in a panicked stampede, and people had been injured in the crush. The darkness had created confusion, slowed the intended prey from fleeing, and left wounded behind who could neither defend themselves nor flee the building. Their helplessness would be driving them mad with fear. It would make them juicier targets for the phage. A metallic, piercing shriek hit my ears in a sudden, stunning shockwave, and my legs stopped moving. I didn't choose to do it. The sound just hit something primitive in my brainstem, something that made my instinct scream at me to freeze, to not be seen. I dropped to one knee, terror suddenly falling onto my shoulders like a physical weight. In the wake of the shriek, I could hear human throats screaming in fear nearby to me, and I could see the shapes of people moving around, lumpy shadows in the faint light from my shield bracelet. A flame suddenly appeared ahead of me, and I got a look at a young woman who crouched down, holding up a cigarette lighter in a hand that shook so badly that it seemed a miracle the lighter stayed aflame. No! I screamed at her. I rose to my feet and lunged toward her. Put out the light! Her face swiveled toward me, ghostly in the light of the tiny flame, her mouth working soundlessly. And then something, the size of a mountain lion, hit her across the shoulders and flung her to the ground. The lighter flew from her hand, the little lick of flame showing me something black and gleaming and spattered with scarlet gore. The woman screamed. The dark hallway became a river of terrified people plunging through the darkness. Someone fell against me, and as I stumbled away from them, I stepped on someone's fingers in the darkness and tripped when I tried to pull my weight off of them. I snarled, slammed my back against the wall, held up my staff, and called up hellfire. Power flooded down the length of the carved oak, its sigils and runes filling with red-white liquid fire that ran from the base of the staff to its head in a ripple of energy. The crisp, clean scent of wood smoke filled the air, tainted with the barest hint of sulfur, and lurid light washed through the hallway. I saw people scrambling, screaming, weeping. They were moving away, taking advantage of the light while they had it, and the hall around me cleared rapidly. It left the woman with a lighter. She lay on her side, curled into a fetal position, her arms clasped around her head while the thing mauled her. It was equal parts feline and insect, all lanky arms, powerful legs, and a whipping tail tipped with a serrated point. Its skin was a black, shining carapace, and it had an elongated, eyeless head ending in viscous, slime-covered jaws full of teeth. Though it had no eyes, it somehow sensed the light of my powered staff, and it whipped around toward me with a hiss, body tensing in sinuous grace, jaws gaping, slime dripping from its teeth, while a slow, enraged, hissing sound emerged from its throat. I stared at it for all of a second in the shock of recognition. Then I gritted my teeth, got my feet underneath me, pointed the end of my staff at the creature, and snarled, Get away from her, you bitch! 
The phage shifted its position, the wounded girl now forgotten, its limbs weirdly jointed, its motion sinuous and eerie. It hissed again, louder. A second pair of jaws emerged from between the first, and they too hissed and parted and drooled in challenge. Is this going to be a stand-up fight or just another bug hunt? I taunted. The phage leapt at me, faster than I would have thought possible, but that's how fast always works. Lots of people, and not people, are faster than me, and I'd learned to plan for it a long time ago. A lot of people think that, in a fight, speed is the only thing that matters. It isn't true. Oh, sure, it's enormously advantageous to have greater speed, but a smart opponent can counter it with good footwork, calculating distance to give him the advantage of economy of movement. The phage was fast, but it had to cross eight or nine feet of carpet to get to me. I had to move my hand about ten inches and harden the shield before my left hand with my will. It wasn't that fast. The phage hit my shield, bringing a ghostly blue quarter dome into shape and sending a cascade of blue sparks flying back around me. At the last second, I turned and angled the shield to deflect the creature's momentum. It caromed off the shield and went tumbling along the hallway beyond me for a good twenty feet. You want some of this? I stepped into the middle of the hall to put myself between the phage and the wounded girl. The phage rose, turning to flee. Before it could move, I thrust the end of my staff in its direction and cried, Fozari! I hadn't ever used quite that much hellfire before. Power rushed out of my staff. Usually when I employed it like this, the force I unleashed was invisible. This time, it rushed out like a scarlet comet, like a blazing cannonball. The force dipped at the last second, then came up at the phage. The impact threw it against the ceiling with bone-crushing force, and at least twice as much energy as I'd intended. The phage came down, limbs thrashing wildly, bouncing and skittering frantically like a half-smashed bug. I hit it again. The ruins in my staff blazing, bathing the whole length of the hall in scarlet radiance, slamming the phage into a wall with more crunching sounds. Yellowish liquid splattered. There was an absolutely awful smell, and sudden holes pocked the wall and the floor where the yellow blood fell. I cried havoc in the hellish light and hit it again, and again, and again. I bounced the murdering phage around that hallway until acid burned a hundred holes in the walls, ceiling, and floor, and my blood sang with the battle, with the power, with triumph. I lost track of several seconds. The next thing I remember, I stood over the crushed, twitching phage. It's the only way to be sure, I told it. And then, with cool deliberation... I slammed the end of my staff into the thing's eyeless skull, muscle and magic alike propelling the blow. Its head crunched and fractured like a cheap taco shell, and suddenly there was no phage, no creature. There was only the damaged hallway, the tainted smell of hellish wood smoke, and a mound of clear, swiftly dissolving ectoplasm. My knees shook and I sat down in the hallway. I closed my eyes. The red light of hellfire continued to pulse through my staff, lighting the hall, illuminating my eyelids. The next thing I knew, 
Mouse pressed up against my side, an enormous, warm, silent presence. Bright lights bobbed toward me, flashlights, footsteps. People were shouting a lot. Jesus, Rollins breathed. Murphy knelt down by me and touched my shoulder. Harry? I'm okay, I said. The girl behind me, she's hurt. Rawlins stood shining his flashlight on a bloody section of the hallway. Jesus Christ. The phage had killed three people before I got there. I hadn't been able to see much of them during the fight. It was a scene of horror, worse than any slaughterhouse. The phage had taken out a cop. I could see a piece of shirt with a blood-stained CPD badge on it. The second victim might have been a middle-aged man judging by a bloodied orthopedic shoe that still held a foot. White leg bone showed two or three inches above the shoe. The third victim had been one of the little vampire girls I'd seen the previous evening. I could only tell because her head had landed facing me. The rest of her was hopelessly intermixed with the other two bodies. They need someone good at jigsaw puzzles to put them back together. Murphy went to the girl with the lighter and knelt over her. How is she? I asked. Gone, Murphy replied. I blinked. What? She's dead. No, I said. I was too tired to feel much of the sudden frustration that went through me. Hell's bells, she was moving just a second ago. I got here in time, Murphy grimaced. She bled out. Wait! I said, staggering to my feet. This isn't... she shouldn't be... I felt a sudden sickness in my stomach. Was she alive when the phage had turned to run? Could I have stopped or slowed the bleeding if I had let the thing retreat to the never-never? I thought of the fight again. I thought of the satisfaction of turning the hunter into prey, of extracting vengeance for those it had slain. I thought about the power that raged through me, the sheer, precise strength of the hellfire-assisted assault, and how good it felt to use it on something that had it coming. I'd barely given a thought to the girl's condition. Had I let her die? My God! I could have let the phage run. I could have helped her. The girl's body lay curled up, still, like a sleeping child. Her dead eyes were open and glassy. I lunged for a potted plant near me and threw up. After I did, Rollins observed, You don't look so good. No, I whispered. The word tasted bitter. I don't. Mouse let out one of his not-wine breaths and laid his chin on my shoulder. My eyes couldn't get away from the dead people, not even when they were closed. The hellish light in my staff slowly faded and went dark. I've got to organize this clusterfuck, Murphy sighed. Rollins, keep an eye on him. Yeah. She nodded once and rose, briskly moving away, snapping orders. You, you, Murphy said, pointing at two nearby cops. Get over there and help the wounded. Airway, bleeding, heartbeat. Move. She raised her voice and shouted, Stallings! Where the hell is my ambulance? Two minutes! A man shouted down a dimly lit hall leading to the lobby. 
It looked like someone had pulled a patrol car or three up to the front of the hotel to shine their headlights into the darkened building. Clear them a path and call for more EMTs, Murphy barked. She took her radio off her belt and started giving more orders. Rawlins looked at the remains and at the acid-scarred walls and the enormous areas of smashed drywall and ceiling that looked like they'd been kissed by a wrecking ball. He shook his head. What the hell happened here? Bad guy, I said. I got him. Not fast enough. Rawlins grunted. Come on. Best we get up to the lobby. Until they get the lights back on, it might not be safe out here. What happened on your end? I asked. Damn candle blew up in my face. Then the lights went out. Thought for a second I'd gone blind. I grunted. Sorry. Some of the civilians were carrying. That howling thing went by in the dark and everyone panicked. Stampede in the dark. People got trampled and scared. Civilians opened fire. Cops opened fire. We got one dead and a couple of dozen wounded by one thing or another. We reached the lobby and found more police arriving along with the emergency crews. The EMTs set up shop at once in a makeshift triage area, where Murphy had brought most of the wounded. The EMTs started stabilizing, evaluating, resuscitating. They had the worst cases loaded in the ambulance and rushing for the hospital within six or seven minutes. Murphy's stream of peremptory commands had slowed to a stop, and she stood near the triage area. I sidled over to her and loomed. Mouse pushed his head underneath her hand, but Murphy only patted him absently. I followed her worried blue gaze. The EMTs were working on Rick. Green sat in a chair nearby. He had wiped his face with a towel, but it hadn't taken the blood out of the creases. It made a sanguine mask of his features. He held the towel against his head with his left hand. Murphy said nothing for a while. Then she asked, Did the spell work? Mostly, I said. I missed one. She tensed. Is it still? No. I picked up the spare. She pressed her lips firmly together and closed her eyes. When the candle went off, I hit the fire alarm. I wanted to clear the building fast, but someone had broken it just like the power and the emergency lights. Something went right by me and hit green early on. Now I'm the one in charge of this mess. What happened to Rick? She spoke dispassionately. Hit by panic fire. Gut shot. I don't know how bad. He'll be all right, I told her. The EMTs would have taken him out first if he was in real trouble. She watched a pair of them labor over Rick. Yeah, she said. He'll be okay. He'll be all right. She forced herself to look away from her ex-husband with a visible effort. I've got to get things under control here until we get the chain of command straightened out and I make sure the wounded are cared for, families notified. God. She shook her head and watched the EMTs lift Rick onto a stretcher and carry him out. Unspoken apology infused her tone. After that, there will be questions, and a rainforest worth of paperwork. I get it, I told her quietly. It's your job. It's my job, she focused her eyes in the distance. I could feel the trembling tension in her. I've known Murphy for a while now. I'd seen her like that before, 
when she wanted to fall apart but couldn't take the time to do it. She was better at managing that kind of thing than me. There was nothing in her expression but calm and confidence. I'll put off everything I can and get back to you as soon as possible. Tomorrow sometime. Don't worry about me, Murph, I told her. And don't be too hard on yourself. If you hadn't gotten in Green's face and stayed here, a lot of people would be dead right now. A lot of people are dead right now, she said. What about our bad guy? I felt my mouth stretch into a sharp-edged, wolfish smile. He's entertaining unexpected guests. Is he going to survive them? I doubt it, I told her cheerfully. If one of those things had jumped me instead of vice versa, it would have taken me out. Three of them would fillet me. Murphy's attention was drawn to the door. Several men in wrinkled suits came in and stood around rubbernecking. Murphy straightened her clothing. What about collateral damage? I don't think it will be an issue. I'll track them and make sure. Murphy nodded. Rollins, she called. The veteran had been hovering not far away, feigning disinterest. She hooked a thumb up at me. Babysit for me? Shoot, Rollins drawled, like I got nothing better to do. Suffer, she told him, but she smiled when she said it. She put her hand on my arm and squeezed hard, letting out some of the pressure behind her calm facade through the contact. Then she strode over to the rubbernecking suits. Rollins watched her go, his lips pursed. That is one cast-iron bitch, he said. His tone revealed a quiet respect. Cast-iron. Hell of a cop, I said. Rollins grunted. Problem with cast-iron, it's brittle. Hit it right, and it shatters. He looked around the foyer and shook his head. This isn't gonna go well for her. Huh? I said. Department's gonna crucify someone for it, Rollins said. They have to. I let out a bitter bark of laughter. <laughs> After all, she probably saved a lot of lives tonight. No good deed goes unpunished, Rollins agreed. Green blinked blearily at us from his chair and then slurred. Rollins, what the hell are you doing down here? I sent you home. Anger gathered on his vague expression. You son of a bitch. You're defying a direct order. I'll have your ass on a platter. Rollins sighed. See what I mean? I lifted my hand with my thumb and the first two fingers extended, the others against my palm, and moved it in a vaguely mystical gesture from left to right. That isn't Rollins. Green blinked at me, and his eyes blurred in and out of focus. The distraction derailed the train of thought he'd been laboriously assembling. It wasn't magic. I've taken headshots before. It takes a while for your brain to start doing its job again, and the vaguest kinds of confusion make things into one big blur. I repeated the gesture. That isn't Rollins. You can go about your business. Move along. Green fumbled with a couple of words, then shook his head and closed his eyes, and went back to holding the towel against his head. Rollins arched an eyebrow. You ever handle any divorce negotiations? I jerked my head at Mouse and said, Come on, before his brains unscramble. Rollins fell into pace beside me. Where are we going? I gave him the short version of what I'd done with the other three phages. 
So now I track them and make sure the guy who called them up is out of play. Demons, Rollins said. Wizards, he shook his head. Look, man, he held up a hand. No, I think about this too much and I won't be any good to you. Don't explain it. Don't talk about it. Let me get through tonight and you can blow my mind all you want. Cool, I told him. You got a car? Yup. Let's go. We went outside and down the street to the nearest parking garage. Rollins drove an old blue station wagon. A bumper sticker on the back read, My kid is too pretty to date your honor student. Mouse let out a sudden warning growl. An engine raced. The dog flung his weight at my thigh and sent me slamming up against Rollins's station wagon. A van rushed at me in my peripheral vision, too fast for me to try to avoid. It missed me by less than six inches. It didn't miss Mouse. There was a meaty sound. The dog let out a ball of pain. Brakes screeched. I turned, furious and terrified, and the runes in my staff seethed with sudden hellfire. I had a split second to see Darby Crane swinging a tire iron. Then stars exploded in front of my eyes, and the parking garage rotated ninety degrees. I saw Mouse sprawled motionless on the concrete thirty feet away. Glau, Crane's lawyer, stood beside the open driver's door of the van, holding a gun on Rollins. See what I mean about headshots? Fade to black. <laughs>